Today on Chase Wildly. I often wonder if this wandering path I'm on is the right one. I worry that I don't know where it's leading. And every now and then in life, there is a moment or a story that touches me and reassures me that I am not alone, that I am not lost. Dr. Robert Macy's story is one of those. From the Virginia woods to the beaches of Morocco to the streets of Boston, here is a human who has spent 30 years innovating to discover how we best help people heal from psychological trauma. He has responded to natural disasters and wars all over the world to provide his expertise on trauma recovery. And he was one of 12 selected to be on the Federal Advisory Commission for Children Exposed to Violence under Barack Obama. I wanted to ask Dr. Macy about his own journey and how he had learned along the way. I asked him beforehand these questions. How did you evolve from boyhood to manhood? What are the experiences in your life that led you toward growth? Who were the men in your life you looked up to or modeled? What formative experiences did you have with older men, both good and bad? And what were the qualities that you were drawn toward in those people? Here are his answers and a glorious retelling of his own journey, stumbling into adulthood and a passionate career. Let's go. village at nightfall and you're hoping someone will invite you in and you're wondering where you're going to go next and why the hell did I choose to walk in the dark on a beach in the middle of nowhere halfway across the world because I did and here I am Dr. Macy, it is a pleasure to have you on. Really, is an Thank honor. Thank you. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna read just quickly from what I found about you. Oh boy! Which is, yeah, I know, exciting. Dr. Robert Macy was trained as a theater artist, a Taoist martial artist, dance movement therapist, clinical psychologist, traumatologist, and neuroscience researcher with over 30 years practice in the field of body-based psychological trauma interventions. Now, that's only uh, the first half of the first sentence of this bio that I found. That's because I'm old. <laughs> I've done a lot of stuff. Yeah, but that's quite an interesting life resume. So I wanted to start this conversation just with sort of a recap of your journey, sort of where you came from and, and how you ended up doing what you're doing today. Sure. Uh, just to also... I do a lot of clinical work, but I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm a development, developmental psychologist. Okay. Um, you know, when I when people ask I'm that, with this just a little closer to you. Great. Um, in terms of my journey, how I got here, um, in many of the cultures I've worked in, 
um, on the other side of the world, so the so-called eastern part of the world, uh, people would be very uncomfortable talking about my journey. Mm-hmm. They, which is fine that you ask. They would be. They would talk about the journey of their tribe or the journey of their village or the journey of their family. So mm-hmm. I just want to bring that up um, as I... You mean in like Eastern traditions? Yeah, cultural okay. cultural yeah. and narrative traditions. But even in Western psychology, when we go to like Cambodia mm-hmm. or Nepal to work with them, we have lots of different exercises and tra- you know transformational experiential work and, and even in clinical interventions. But... If you say, please tell me about you, they say, I'm going to talk. Yes, let me tell you about my family or let me tell you about my tribe or my village. Mm -hmm. So the the ego here is we go over there, you know, ego versus we go. So I'm I'm happy. I love talking about myself (laughs) to someone like you anyway. uh, But but I also just want to focus both for the purpose of the audience and the journey of men. Um, I just think it's it's really key. It's been key for me that much of who I've become is because of the groups I've been with mm. and the kind of the cultural shaping of group and collective witnessing. Mm-hmm. So um, I th- I'm not sure whose joke it was, but when you asked me about how I got here, my first thought is I was born at a very early age. <laughs> I'm not sure who, who said that. We should probably <laughs> look it up. But the, one of the things that first comes up, because people have asked me this, because I've had so many, I've fused so many different types of domains of knowledge and right. approaches. And it wasn't because I wanted to build some kind of, you know, eclectic approach. It was just the influences that I was exposed to and then and the timing of those influences. Mm-hmm. So I had four brothers. Mm-hmm. So there were five boys a year apart. I was born on a farm in Virginia in 1954. And I grew up on another farm right next to that farm till I was about 10, 11 years old. Mm. Our bus ride was about an hour each way. So we were pretty, it was a little teeny town called Locustdale, outside of Orange, outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. Okay. And my dad had a 300-acre dairy farm, Holstein cows, so milkers. So we were really, my, my early influence was all nature. It was all being in nature and four other brothers. I mean, we we didn't really go on play dates. Once in a while, I think people came over, but we were pretty much outside from, you know, dawn to dusk on the weekends or in the summer. It was yeah. an incredibly beautiful farm, Virginia farm near the Shenandoah Valley. Mm. And I continually remember one of my deepest early influences was we had a couple of big ponds and there was a very small, almost like a little reflection pool that was natural that was in this grove of uh, hemlocks. And I th- I'm sure other people knew about it, but I thought it was my secret spot. So I was probably six or seven when I would go in there and I'd made a little seat and I would just stare at the water and listen to the wind. And you know, I don't know why I did that, but it almost became a, a ritual. I needed to do it a lot. And I decided at, at you know, seven, half, eight years old, I was pondering like, What's the most powerful, what's the most all-present force in nature? Mm-hmm. And, you know, because is it the sun? Is it the moon, which is a reflection of the sun? Is it, is it water? Is it, is it tree life or plant life? And uh, hands down, after however many weeks, I, I decided, and I'm sure I was right, I think I'm still right to this day, 
that it's the wind. Okay. That the wind moves all. And I didn't know about solar winds back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know what started me thinking like that. The only thing that I can come up with now, you know, 64 years later or 60 years later, is the influence of the constant exposure to nature and to the cows and to my brothers. So kind of the collective siblings. And then this extraordinary ongoing attunement or interaction with nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, that basically set me up, I think certainly intellectually and cognitively, but also in terms of my kinesphere, my proprio and interoceptive experience of myself, my physical somatic self, I was really connected to nature and to the forces in nature. Mm-hmm. And so were my brothers. Yeah. Um, we're all incredibly different, but all of us, frankly, have done pretty amazing things. And I think, I think some of that has to do with the early launch of just being immersed in nature all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the farm, the farm was a big, big deal for me. And if I had my way with fathers and parents, I would um, do anything I could to guide them to get their children outside as much as possible. Yeah. Um, What's that sensitivity that you feel like you developed? I mean, you threw a lot of I don't know, scientific man, words out there. Sorry, I mean, but, and I'm not sure I well, know. Well, so in, all internal of them, perception. Help me. Yeah. Inter- so, in, so there's this thing called kinesphere. So okay. I think it was Da Vinci with the famous the. The man in the ball. Yeah. So as far as you can reach with toes and hands, that's that's your kinesphere. That's your globe, right? Okay, right. And, and now we can measure all this. We've got all kinds of scanning equipment. So we're about 90%, 80 to 90% water, mm-hmm. our whole organism, right? So yeah. water takes, moves magnetic charge very quickly. Hmm. So it creates energy. So the heart and the brain, every organ has a certain energetic pulse that right. you can measure. And some in the old days it was called aura or auric body. Right. So the kinesphere can be for your sensitive, your kinesphere intelligence can be further developed by by interacting with different types of energies. So the nature has just got you know so many variables of energy and and part of what what I learned later I didn't know I was going to learn it in the um, in the Chinese martial arts. It's it's really all about interacting with different energetic frequencies to okay. increase your health and your intelligence and your your kindness so i just even back then though i felt something was different and i always wanted to be out there and dress up and played tarzan and we had this kind of (laughs) jungle in the backyard it was all i don't know what kind of plants but they were just overgrown stuff so that's kind of that kind of sensitivity yeah like and when i was upset even as a little kid i always went outside like i didn't go to my room i went outside to get soulless Mm-hmm. Or even me and my brother, or if we all got in trouble, we would go outside and go to one of our forts or go into this little cave we had built or go to the hay barn. Yeah. So I'm not sure what that is. I mean, I think I could, I think I can explain that, but I don't know if we have to do that right now. I, I think that there has been a lot written about this. There's uh-huh. a book called um, Nature Deficit Disorder. Okay. As opposed to Attention Deficit yeah. Disorder. There's a quote of, a, I think, a six year old on the first page. It says, My favorite place to play is inside because that's where all the electrical outlets are. Oh, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not <laughs> condemning electricity, uh, and I don't think we need to get into all the whole screen time and social media and all that, but I think we do have pretty good information now, we scientists, that 
you know, a lack of attachment to nature and a quote over attachment to screen and to digital um, is not going to get kids where they need to go in terms of relationships mm-hmm. and in terms of relationship to themselves. Mm-hmm. That's not a, well, it's, that's not an, an academic announcement, but that's, a lot of people have been looking at this for a long time. Right. So anyway, then we had that sensitivity. I mean, we had a TV maybe by the time I was eight, I think TV came out, but we got to watch one hour on Sunday night. Because <laughs> my what dad was on Sunday night. My dad called it. Oh, he called it. Anyway, he hated TV. My dad was a World War II vet. Mm. So the farm piece was really part of my journey. Yeah. Um, and my launch. And I was always comfortable outside. It didn't, I mean, I, I have great respect for forest and tree and especially ocean. I've been on the ocean most of all the outside environments. Um, and then in our summers, we were, we were up on Martha's Vineyard, so I was on the water in the summers a lot. Okay. So between those two, it was, you know, full-on nature burst. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, there's a lot of things in between, but in terms of that first paragraph you read so the nature piece and the farm piece the brotherhood piece with my siblings was early foundation i think mm-hmm. um the other thing was that virginia was um this is 54 to to 68 when i left virginia to go to we all got sent away to prep school and my dad and my granddad got sent away to prep school so it was just it was an, a you know a soon foregone conclusion um, it was really, really racist. Mm-hmm. Um, structural racism, really sophisticated oppression. And on our farm, which is in the middle of nowhere, we had uh, black folk basically living amongst us and we amongst them. And you know, Dad was a World War II vet who lived all over the world, and he didn't really... Not only did he not really see the point in, like, you know, separating from the, mm-hmm. the black people, he... He was pretty pissed about the fact that everybody else was doing that. So that caused a certain amount of, um, shall we say, tension in the neighborhood, which luckily was really broad. So I think the next farm was a, like a 15-minute drive. <laughs> um, there, was, there was space for t- that tension to diffuse. There was space bit. for the diffusion, right. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't necessarily plan it, but it turned out my, one of my early boy, boyhood best friends I, th- I think he was Dennis, yeah. It was a black kid, dark, dark black kid. And uh, we just got hell everywhere we went, you know. <laughs> oh, and we weren't, even, we weren't trying to get hell. We were just hanging sure. out, but it was like, you know, and his mom and dad were really cool too. They were, you know, they were worried about the relationship and what was going to happen. But people kept, you know, throwing stuff at us and trying to attack us. So Honestly, I was interested. I didn't call it martial arts back then, but I didn't like to get hit in the head. I hated getting hit. Mm-hmm. I think I got punched once or twice in the head early on. I just said, so, you know, I'm not going to let that happen again. We're gonna, we, the two of us are going to defend against you know, the world. <gasps> so we were in a lot of so-called street fights. Yeah. Um, and it left an impression on me in terms of you know, kind of defending myself and standing up for my friend. I mean, I guess I knew he was black, but I knew he was my friend. I mean, right. of course, I don't think anyone's colorblind, but I didn't see Dennis as, as a black, as in the sense of the, how the South sees, sees or saw the black back then. Anyway, so the culmination of that story was that uh, it must have been my, I think my, tw- my 12th birthday party. 
we had moved from the farm to Charlottesville. And um, I invited, like, my whole class, which included Dennis. And nobody came except Dennis. Mm. One kid drove up and, and pushed a birthday present out the window for me and then drove off real fast with his mom. And this was because there would be... Because Dennis was there, yeah. 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 And everybody else was white that was invited. My mom was my mom was great. I mean, me and Dennis are standing there going, "What do we, what do we do now?" We we went ahead and had the party, but I'm not sure. You know, and memory always changes over time. But my my memory of that was first really deep sadness because I was looking at Dennis's face and thinking he probably thinks he ruined my birthday party, and he didn't. I'd rather have him here than those blank blank blanks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he kind of changed when I he saw me looking at him. And then I, I basically went to anger, like of seeing red. Yeah. And that's when my mom like put her hands on my shoulders. She called me Bobby. She said, Bobby, you know, just it's gonna be good. Just calm down. So I was known to have a temper back then. <laughs> back <laughs> so then. part of me couldn't wait. Yeah. Well, to to the whole discussion around men. Yeah. Um I don't really know what the temper came from. I was I was the second of five. Mm-hmm. And in that, in my family, the Macy family, and in that generation, the eldest boy was looked upon as sort of almost sacred, or or the most important to to further. So I, I must have felt some of that. Right. Me and my older brother Archer talked talked about that a number of times because they they kind of set us up to compete. So Arch mm-hmm. was the smart one, and I was the strong one. Okay, right. So you can imagine how the chores got split up, and you know so. Um, but I think that was part of the, had to be part of the, the early anger, but I, a lot of it was the, the prejudiced. Yeah. Prejudice, and also I was in a Catholic school. Mm. Um, you know, so bef- some sense before of we oppression knew about what the church was doing. Yeah. Sense of what? Oppression. Yeah, and, and well, bullying. You. Bullying. And really, I didn't know what, what it meant back then, but I felt that the, the social injustice, the ecological injustice mm-hmm. of people treating little kids essentially like they're slaves or like they can, you know, they're, they can be tossed around as, as the adults wish they could. And that's actually, as I s- start talking to you, that's probably more the source of it than me and my older brother is the, the early bullying with the, just with the racist people and Dennis and black people in Virginia. And then in the church, um, you know, you had nuns and a monsignor, and there was a way to do everything, and it was you know, only one way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we were talking about, you know, theology and you know, pretty broad, deep subjects when we got into religion and the catechism and the Bible. Yeah. And I think they didn't know what to do with some of us, certainly with me, because I was taking it seriously. I was, I was an early, serious, um, curious, probably pain-in-the-ass student so, like, I'm reading this stuff, and I'm asking questions. Sure. And they didn't like most of my questions, and they, I'm assuming they thought I was trying to cause trouble. Right. Right, like somehow disrupting the class, but I wasn't. But if I asked the wrong question, they'd take these big rings and turn them upside down so the, the bulbous part of the ring was facing down in your palm, and they would just mm-hmm. whack you over the head with it. Oh. That, I don't feel traumatized by that. It wasn't torture or anything, but it really did. It made me very angry. Yeah. And part of the anger, which is my point with the men in the audience, young men and old men, is um, I think that's one of the most powerful go-to default 
emotional responses we have when we feel threatened is we we get really angry or anger comes up. And that, of course, is not necessarily something you can control. But there are exceptions. But how I see it and how I teach and work with men now is, you know, nine times out of 10, anger is the practice of fear. Mm. So as waves are the practice of water, anger is the practice of fear. And I can tell you, not to bum out anyone in the audience that's done this or had to do this, but we don't have any, we have not one piece of good, validated, evidence-based research that shows that anger management courses work at all. Hmm. But it's still the number one referral out of the courts yeah. for men that are violent or overly angry. So what's the alternative? I mean, we're here, so let's dig into that. Well, it's funny you should ask. I mean, <laughs> I didn't know at the time again, but that became a, a driving force of how I wanted to learn mm. my education and, and how I've, my mission developed me and I developed my mission. Because of your own anger? Because of what you well, saw around it you? It was more, yeah. I, knew, I mean, I knew that I needed to change because I hurt people. Because you just blurt out, you know, when you have a really bad temper. And, yeah. you know, Buddha said one moment of anger will ruin a lifetime of good works. Mm -hmm. I didn't read that until I was about 15, but, you know, I knew something was wrong when I'd get angry because it, you, couldn't, you almost couldn't repair it. And I felt, I felt deep shame and really upset. Um, but it was also something, what I focused on was not self-improvement at first. I focused on how do you stop the bully mm -hmm. and what are bullies and how do you recognize bullies? So how do right. we stop the bully? So, so that's that's part of why I have learned all these different things is <laughs> to help people reduce violence. Yeah. So was that how you got into martial arts at first? Yeah. So um, so I go off to prep school. I had a well a seminal moment because you asked in the in part of one of your questions about older men that influenced me. Sure. And there was a, a guy. He was a Jesuit priest. Do you know much about the Jesuits? Not much. No. Um, they're very distinct, different type of priest because of their training. They're logicians and they're evolutionary psychologists, basically, and they're, they're just wicked, wicked smart. Mm. And they can basically out-argue anybody and, because they're just so good at thinking and with mm -hmm. words. And um, so in the Catholic Church, you know, you're supposed to go to confession before you go to communion. And... I did. I was doing everything right because I really bought in, man. I was gonna. I wanted to be a. I thought I wanted to be a priest. Yeah. In fourth grade, you get confirmed, and the Holy Spirit comes over you, and a, a flame comes over your head. And I saw that all happened to me. I saw it happen. I, mean, I don't know, but I sure. thought I thought it was happening to me anyway. Yeah, beautiful. Um, and I was just, you know, try, I was doing everything right. And um, there was a point in early early fall fall term of eighth grade. Uh, Every Friday, which is the last day of the week, in the afternoon, you had to go to confession. So I'm sitting at my desk, and I didn't line up to go to confession. Sister Hyacinth comes up, says, you got to get up and go to confession. I said, I don't have anything to, I don't have anything to confess. She goes, well, do you go through this? Of course we all do all the time. We're sinning all the time. It was such horseshit. But, mm -hmm. And I was really being nice. I wasn't trying to cause trouble. Just, I don't have anything. And if I go in and lie about something, then I have something sin, else. Now I got... <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to do that or something like that? And she got furious to get the ring upside the head. So now I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm like, how do I do that? I mean, how do I do this with these adults? So I get in line and I get in there. And the more that I get upset walking to the church, when I walk in and church was sacred space, mm -hmm. 
I don't know if it was willful or if it came to me, but it felt like it was a, like it was a glide, like I got, like you put a canoe into the water, very slowly, mm-hmm. and I just walked out of line and I walked up to the altar and I knelt down in the middle of the altar and I just stayed there and prayed. And the nuns came up like they were freaking out. Get back in line! They were screaming in the church. They were grabbing my shoulders. So I just went electively mute and just looked forward and just prayed. Mm-hmm. And um. Then the, you know, the judge, we're going to call your mother, and I didn't move. So everyone went to confession, and the, the, when they were coming out, the sisters got really mad again and were really being aggressive, and they finally walked away. And this, this guy, I'm telling you about Father Michael, Monsignor Michael, he, hadn't, he wasn't on campus that day. And my mom comes, and she comes up, and, she's, and God bless her, but you know, she's like shaking, like, what are you doing? You know, and the, every, the whole school's going to know this now. And, all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, I don't blame her. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really a pain for her. Um, and finally she gave up because I didn't talk to her either. She went out and sat on the steps of the church. So about, I don't know how many minutes later, when I was all alone and nobody was yelling at me, I got up and I walked out and I sat down next to her. And she's, Bobby, Bobby, what have you done? <laughs> so I told her the story. Oh, and she was just, I think she was just overcome, overwhelmed with, I guess her own embarrassment and mis- not understanding me, why I couldn't just go into the confession. You know, and she's my elder and she'd been brought up in that church and of course you sin every day, mm-hmm. you know, um, which is, you know, a strange, she saw it's a strange how seriously philosophy. you took it. She and did. And how seriously your intent, your, your good intentions were. In right, but she didn't, yeah. that didn't jive with the fact that I wouldn't go to confession. Sure, okay. And I, I, I didn't blame her that day. Yeah. I mean, I was basically already a little mini theologian. I, you know, she couldn't really keep up with me. So I go home, you know, I tell dad, and dad was, you know, not raised in the Catholic Church. He was, it's fine, everybody, it's fine, just let it go. Mm-hmm. Then, um, so the point of my, all my long-winded stories here, the point is, I go it's back the next story. day. Don't cut it short. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I go back the next day, and um, the, the, so Sister Heinz is so proud, she walks up to me before I even get my, my desk, and she goes, Father Michael, Monsignor Michael wants to see you right now. And I wasn't scared. I was kind of curious. Mm-hmm. But I was also ready. If he started to pull anything, mm-hmm. you know, I was probably just going to leave school. I, I didn't want to blow up at him. I didn't hadn't had much intercourse with him. I mean, he was, strike that, strike that. I hadn't had much engagement with him. <laughs> <laughs> In I never, the church context, I, I, I never experienced. I never really experienced any sort of yeah. priest abuse, some, some violence. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the priest who was... I was in the choir with, he, he tried to punch me a few times, but <laughs> so I go to Monsignor Michael's office and he's sitting behind his desk. He gets up before I come in the inn and comes around the desk. He's got a book, a little, like a book, like it's probably, I think it was like 120 pages. And he apologized for the church. He apologized for the sisters and he apologized for God. And he said, you were absolutely within your rights. I mean, you, you don't sin every day. And, I, you know, it's something that we're working on with the sisters. And, you know, you, the thing they didn't see is you knelt down at the altar. And I assume you were praying. Were you praying? I said, yes, I was. And he goes, well, good for you. He goes, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. I think my mom's pretty up, upset. And he goes, yeah, I just got off the phone with her. She's going to be fine. And he goes, I want you to read this. And it was a book by Teilhard de Chardin, who was a Jesuit priest, who was also um, an anthropologist, which back then, like, so he was digging into the earth and coming up with a different idea than, 
the church was pitching as far as history and evolution. Um, and I didn't know who he was at all. And it, the book was just, I could almost reach it. It was enough that it blew my mind. And I ended up over the next few years reading everything he wrote. It's a pretty extraordinary writer and thinker. But I come home and my mom says, okay, how was the talk with Father, with, uh, with Monsignor Michael? Because she was just hoping I would say, I learned my lesson. And I, and I just said, he gave me this. And she started weeping because she, she was very well. She was a very, very smart, really well-educated woman. She read everything all the time. Mm-hmm. Like she was, all, she was a history teacher. She, yeah. had, she had two master's degrees. But she knew Chardin, and she's like, why did he give you that? This man, this guy's a heretic. <laughs> the Pope doesn't like this guy. And my, so it was just kind of a funny story. But that was a major influence in older men on me early, before I went off to prep school mm-hmm. about whatever. I guess standing up social justice, you know. Shifting thinking, your relationship with theology a little bit as well. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Shifting my relationship with theology, with ideas, giving me a lesson that it's okay to think outside the normative box, so to speak. I mean, you don't, and you don't have to destroy things to think outside of it, but you're allowed to do so. And, you know, this is really, think of it, it's a big deal. Like, I was thinking about being a priest. It's my life as I'm going into high school. Like, you know, and that, they asked me to be a good student. To me, that means, you know, you, you absorb, you immerse, you challenge, you push back, you want polemic, you want, you want people discussing it. Yeah. And you don't need to be in a fear state to do that. In fact, the fear state reduces learning. Anyway, so I go to prep school, and lots there's lots of stories there. But to keeping trying to keep to get back to your question, we were the first class in my school where they had recruited, um, basically recruited jocks. Mm-hmm. It was Suffield Academy, so it was 1968 to 1972. My class size was I think, I think 22. Yeah, my freshman class, and this this guy Appleton Severance, who was the headmaster, you know, he was really old fashioned, but he was smart, and he figured out, you know, he needed to have, I mean, Southfield's small, it's like a class C school, okay, right, but he really wanted to be competitive in 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 the athletics program, so he he just imported jocks from everywhere. So, of the twenty two kids in my class, I don't know, half of them were from from South America. In Africa. Oh, really? From everywhere, so, from all over the world. Right. Yeah. So all, most, <laughs> most of the classes above us were, you know, white with a side of white. It's pretty, you know, just pretty mainstream. And then we had we had this really diverse class. And I, I got in, I got in on swimming. But um, there was also the same year, decade and decade, where seniors were allowed to do anything to freshmen, anything, even really bad stuff. It was just seniors rule and, you know, you're under you're underclassmen and you just have to take it. And so all of these guys, including me, we were, we were really buffed and we were really competitive and we didn't just sit down when people told us to, you know, stick our heads somewhere. Yeah. So there was a tradition at the school that um, at the first snowfall, the teachers and the dorm masters, everyone looked the other way and the whole senior class would come running down these hills to the lower campus, which we were in these little teeny shacks as freshmen, right? And haul us out of bed and beat the crap out of us and throw us in the snow and throw snowballs at us. Mm-hmm. And they had the senior flag and they would come down, and, you know. So um, I just had it in my head that I was not, I was not going to be part of that. <laughs> and uh, most of my freshman class, not all of them, there was kind of a split. Um, but enough of my freshman class joined me and we, we, 
<laughs> Let's just say we... Um, you defended we, the strong Well, well we immobilized our, <laughs> our, what do they call the dorm proctors, two seniors. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't do anything about it because they were otherwise indisposed. <laughs> and, and so we, went, we snuck out during study hall and we made all these um, trenches and we made literally hundreds of ice balls, small mm. like like a lacrosse ball size, sure. wicked, wicked weapons. And they're going to freeze overnight or whatever. No, they were coming down were, at the bell. At 940, okay. the bell, study bell, study hall is gotcha. over, and they were rushing out. That's what we mm -hmm. heard. And then some of us, and I, I, will, take the, I will take the responsibility, strung some tripwire at the first field. So about 150 yards from the senior dorm, they would hit the... Uh, ankle trip wire yeah and then anyone that missed that was going to get a chest wire <laughs> we strung oh. it across the whole soccer field gosh i know i was so something was so there was a little something twisted about me i'm not sure that launch <laughs> <laughs> and so long story short first wave came down and got hit by the trip ankle trip wire and you could hear people then some people were moaning i was like oh god I, this is I hope no one has to go to the hospital, but I still, I was like, I can't wait to, I want to fight these guys. Yeah. And then so you could hear some people cursing, like, okay, we're, you think that's funny, but, you know, so it got really bad. Then the second wave was taken out by the chest wire. wire. Yeah. Most of them crawled back up, but by the time they got close enough so we could see them, we were just pelting them. Yeah. They didn't have any weapons. Yeah. Other than their hands and the flag. They just thought they were going to come in and rip us out of bed. So right. the surprise really worked. I and mean, they were completely... Completely disrupted. Their morale was totally disrupted. Their, yeah. their belief that of how this was going to go yeah. was shattered. It totally messed up their <laughs> psyche. Yeah. And a couple of the kids in my class were brought in as wrestlers, and they were very significantly accomplished already before they got to high school. <laughs> right. And I was just a, I was a street fighter, um, but you know, so a lot of fisticuffs ensued, mm -hmm. and then um, somebody jumped on my back. You know, I could, and he was yelling at me. I could feel him like almost trying to bite my neck. And I just saw my red and mm -hmm. I flipped him over and I just started pummeling him. Mm. And I didn't even care. And I saw his face get bloody and I saw his eyes and he was big. He was bigger than me and I was, I was pretty big. Then all of a sudden, like, like out of the sky, literally, someone grabs the back of my collar and just lifts me into the air like this, like just mm. up in the air, just holding me like a, like a, kid, like a cat. Yeah. And it's this guy named Howard Benedict, who was the state champion and the national champion in his weight class in wrestling. He was huge, and he was just this, he was the Hulk. Oh, man. And he goes, <laughs> I'll skip the expletives. He goes, what do you think you were doing? He goes, that's my co-captain. You can't beat him up like that. So it was interesting because he could have pummeled me, but I think he was like, who is this kid? Who is this freshman class? Howie was an amazing man. He was an amazing young man for his age. And he just put me down. He goes, like, you got to back off. He goes, you tell everybody else to back off. And I just got in his face. He goes, man, you are, you're a pissed off kid. You've got to figure out what's going on there. And in the meantime, my other brothers are running around, my, my other class buddies. Yeah. We grabbed the senior flag, and we basically defeated them. Mm -hmm. And so the next morning, we walked into the uh, cafeteria with the senior flag, and just you could hear a hush. And you could see some of the faculty, along with Appleton Severance, the headmaster, were in conference on how they were going to how they were going to discipline the freshman class, but what were they going to do? Because the whole thing was illegal to start with. <laughs> right. But from that point on, which was also 68 to 72, was, you know, I don't know how much you remember that history, but that was the culmination, the worst part of the Vietnam War. They, all, most of those parts were bad. And, you know, the entrance into a new way of thinking and new music, so it was sure. a really vital, rich, upside-down period. 
Yeah, absolutely. Over on this side of the country in the West, you know, the 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 love revolution is beginning at that time. Yeah, well, it got back to our coast pretty quick. I mean, oh, I'm sure it was happening you know, there too, yeah, right? You guys, you guys Woodstock were 69 or whatever, yeah. yeah. So to your, to your question again, the, the, what formed in me there was a sense of revolt mm. and a sense of um, not taking what the bully offers. And the very early consciousness, cognizance, emotional and and intellectual thinking wait a minute if i'm going to stop the bully then i can't be a bully myself mm-hmm. and if i'm going to try to reduce the way they use people and oppress people and use violence i don't think i can oppress and be violent because i don't think that's it's not going to happen when i'm going to get lost and i'm not going to yeah. have something clear to, to to say or to be to be around people with it was just yeah. it was a just the birth of this kind of emotional and intellectual piece. How does that, I see how the first part comes, the, the revolt. The second part seems like a, an amazing leap to, to, to have that realization. Because I think a lot of people oftentimes find themselves in revolt and then continue in revolt for 40 years of their lives. Mm. How, however, you saw that dominating others wasn't necessarily was in a sense being a bully, the, the same thing you were revolting against. Well, I think, I think you know, the universe, um, the, the farm and nature, um, the God I still pray to, I, I was gifted with a lot of capacities. Hmm. Um, by that I mean I think my compassion got turned on really early and my empathy. So when I was hitting this poor kid who was... You know, he had won like many tournaments. He was a, I didn't know how to wrestle. But again, for him, there's a kid on the, the co-captain of the, of the wrestling team, Howie's buddy. When I was hitting him, his, his face was, he was so shocked and he was still angry, but he looked lost and hopeless and, and he was in this unbelieving state and it got to my stomach. Mm-hmm. You know, as I was, it got to my stomach because um, I hadn't, in, in Virginia, we always fought, but we were running, we were fighting because, you know, they had bricks and knives and stuff. So we would, we would hit and run. I mean, we wouldn't stay there and, like, you wouldn't look him in the eyes. But yeah. this is my first look in the eyes kind fight. Of. And then the way Howie, the guy that picked me, was looking at me, I realized that it had to be more than just fight, fight back. Mm-hmm. There was something else going on. And I, I was reading all the time. I took, you know, I, was, I studied ethics, English, and theology and theater in, in high school. So you you were you were not well you were forced, but you were required to look at a lot of things in different ways. Mm-hmm. So it was partly a sentiment, if you will. But then I started forming the cognitive piece around there's if you're going to work with bullies, you know how do you do it? So I hadn't read Gandhi at that point. I think I'd heard about him, but um, I was I don't know why to this day. I mean I still talk about it with my therapist, but. I was so significantly disturbed by the war. And I ended up being, for a while, the only, the only guy on campus. I had a lot of kids, even some of my best friends, really shunned me and didn't like me because I was protesting against the war, but I honored all the servicemen when they came home. They and didn't I, like you because you honored the servicemen? Because I had this two-faced oh. stance, they thought. Yeah, yeah. So the protesters, and there, a lot of these kids in Southfield were pretty conservative. I mean, I was definitely probably one of the most radical kids there. Um, but 
the men that went over there, many of them, you know, some of them certainly chose. Some of them didn't. There was a draft back then. But they went and they tried to do what they were supposed to do. So you can't dishonor the people that have been sent into war. You know, no matter, I think no matter what your stance is, if you're a pacifist, good, be a pacifist. But if someone else goes into war for whatever reason, protesting against them to stop the war isn't, I just knew right away that was the wrong formula. Mm -hmm. So I, I went after the authority figures and I went after the power structures. I created an under, underground newspaper. We did some really bad stuff <laughs> on campus. <laughs> Nothing violent to people, but just, you know, we tried to keep, we just tried to keep shutting down the school at strategic times. Yeah. Um, and I was feeling a sense of um, maybe not fulfillment, but I felt empowered and I felt mobilized to be able to action, to give action to my beliefs and to the beliefs of a small group of us mm -hmm. who shared what now most people share in common all the time around, around war and not, not doing war. Yeah. Um, so that revolution to that whole idea to then acting on it, um, but it both put me in order in a way to want to help the world and to want to interact with people and to try and stop violence. But it also, I know it took its toll. It was, you know, I know that now, but after all the work I've done, but it, part of me was a bit off kilter because mm. I was so revolutionary and radical and angry at the, at the injustice, mm -hmm. um, at which other, some of my classmates have reflected 25 years later when Appleton died, when the headmaster died. Um, and we wrote each other, and it was like, why were you so angry, man? Mm. How are you like doing now? Yeah. Um, so I, I knew that I, that was still part of my trajectory, is how do I deal, deal with the fear and the anger? And then the last piece of Suffield was that Appleton Severins um, was, in the end, was the only person who really stood up for me on the faculty, because I, I basically made myself an enemy to the entire faculty. Mm -hmm. um, by doing stuff that they, co they couldn't really... Discipline me for so they just put me on discipline probation for my the next three years of my career at and at prep school because I would wear you had to wear you had to wear t a tie and a coat on Monday through Friday Monday through Saturday and on Sunday you wore a suit so I went to these secondhand stores and I'd get these 1940 suits beautiful <laughs> Italian suits they were like three times too big yeah with a shirt and I, so I would have the tie on. But the tie would like come down to my solar plexus. Sure. So it's like I had an open V-neck. But I was perfectly in dress code. Sure. And they thought I was doing that to upset them, and I wasn't. I just don't like stuff. <laughs> Are you there. sure you were? I might have been yeah. maybe a little bit. Maybe yeah, I was, little, I was at like, that you point. Know, I, just, yeah, I was bucking the system. The system sure. made no sense. Anyway, uh, there was a point in which I did, I did you know, skip out to go see my girlfriend who was, who was breaking up with me. I was freaking out. And I hitchhiked you know, across Connecticut, Massachusetts. I stuffed my bed, but they caught me. Mm. And I had, I was no, I was, there was no last chance. So they wanted to kick me out. And, and the whole faculty like voted unanimously, get this guy out of here. <laughs> and this is my, um, uh, this is my, this is my, the fall term of my senior year. I mean, I'd put in almost four years there. Sure. And um, God, he, he, Appleton was an amazing man. What a man. He, he asked me to breakfast the next morning. You know, and everyone knowing the news, it was, it was all over campus at Macy mm -hmm. was getting booted. And um, it was this beautiful old house and beautiful formal dining table and breakfast setup. It was just him and me, and he was pink-cheeked and had his bow tie on, typical, like, awesome headmaster regalia, <laughs> you know? And we'd had talks before. He, like, always asked, he, like, was interested in me and what I had to say. 
but he was looking pretty stern and he's, he, he had me sit down and we ate a little bit. I didn't really feel like eating. He goes, listen, um, I know you've heard. I know Mr. Prevere has talked about you and your doormaster talked talk to you. Um, I do have one option I want to explore with you. I'm thinking to myself. Oh, and I just, a shout out to my dad. That evening before that breakfast, I called him and told him everything. And he, he listened to the whole thing and he goes, Robert, you got yourself into this. I know you've told me about what you're doing, and I, I support your beliefs, but you got yourself into this, so you're going to have to get yourself out of it. And if that means you have to eat some shit, I suggest you eat some shit, because otherwise you're going to have to start prep school over again, and I don't think you want to do that. <laughs> Click. <laughs> so Appleton at breakfast says, I'd like you to see a psychiatrist, mm. and I'm, I'm going to um, withhold or I'm going to... I'm going to I'm going to postpone your 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 expulsion. I think those are his exact words. <laughs> I will uh, postpone until, your and, expulsion. Yeah, yeah, until we hear from the psychiatrist that you have to go and I said I feel like that's blackmailing me. He goes, "Don't even start." He goes, "You're having breakfast with the headmaster. My entire team wants you out of this school this morning." So you think very carefully about what you say next. I've actually I've sourced a psychiatrist for you with your mother back at home. You need to leave for a week and see him three times. And I wasn't sure what to do, but I felt like I lost the war because sure. I was young and dumb. Mm -hmm. And here someone is again but an authority telling you he, what you have but, to do. But he led with heart. Mm -hmm. He gave me a choice. So to fathers and men out there, when you're disciplining, when you're trying to shape your young man or your young, your young daughter, whoever, Command and control don't work. It never works. You can't use coercion, restraint, seclusion, isolation in any form at all, raising your children and in relationship to yourself. It's going to go badly. You're never going to get a good outcome. Yeah. So App cared. I knew he cared. Yeah. And that, otherwise, I would have blown up and said, how dare you? I'm not doing it. I felt I lost the war because he, it was like, I'm going to do what this man says. Mm -hmm. And you know what I realized at that moment? I don't want to let him down. Mm -hmm. And then I was pissed, like, oh, my God, this guy's gotten into me. It's going to ruin all my values. <laughs> all but was, my revolutionary but he was, ideas. He was relational to me. He wasn't, yeah. you know, command and control. And he was mm -hmm. the top dog. That's an interesting dynamic. I want, to, I want to explore it just a little bit. Because when someone gives you an opportunity like that, there's a number of things that are happening there, right? Like you're resistant to it. And yet you still, part of you still wants to do it. So that resistance to change still exists, even when yeah, it didn't go away. That breakfast. even when we have to do things right. that are good for us or end up yeah. being gifts in our lives. And like I said, he, I mean, he, he, the way he looked at me and the way he treated me, his tone of voice, and his posture, he really cared about me. He wanted me to stay. He wanted to give me my diploma. He didn't say any of that, but it was all nonverbal. So I called Dad back, and I was like bitching him when he goes, "I told you you'd have to eat some shit. Go see the shrink." So I went to see the shrink, and that's a whole funny story, but I came back, I got let back in, and I graduated. But that was, a, uh, in terms of an older man mm -hmm. influencing me and putting me on the pathway to where I'm at now, he was a, he was a huge influence. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know it then, but part of me was trying to, what's that word, kind of model after him mm -hmm. when I worked with other people yeah. around. The, I didn't know then like what it meant to be relational and instead of command and control, but... I knew I wanted to be softer and gentler and really listen to people. Yeah. So I go to I go to college. I go to college in out in Oregon, um, and I really wanted to be an actor. Okay. 
I wanted to be an actor and, and be behind, this, behind the, the set and in front of the set. Where had that come from? My dad was an actor, along with being a farmer. My dad was the only man in the whole South that had a master's degree from Cornell and happened mm-hmm. to be an animal husbandry. Okay. <laughs> and he had, <laughs> it's he was, a normal he mix. Was a, with the first invading, first invading force into Japan after the bombs. He fought in hand to hand in the Philippine jungle, mm-hmm. you know, at 18 years old. Um, was one of the first pilots in Virginia. He was one of these Renaissance guys. But I saw him act. You know, I went to, he was just community theater at that point. He had done mm-hmm. theater at Cornell, where he met my mom. But um, I was just, I was enamored of it. And my dad, for some reason, none of the other boys went to go, but he, I, he loved opera and he took me to a bunch of operas. So just the whole theater of it was like blew me away, right? Yeah. Um, so I started studying it in Suffield, and so I decided that I would apply to a school that I could really get, you know, more modern improv theater work mm-hmm. and learn how to be an actor. So you went out to Oregon. Where did you end up doing that? Lewis and Clark College. Okay. Which had a great, great uh, kind of unheard of theater program. And um, I'm actually stealing the line from, um, who's the lead singer for uh, Aerosmith? Oh, uh, Steven Tyler. Steven Tyler. I think he said this about his Boston University, but, you know, college was the best 10 years of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I I took me like almost six because I left a couple times to go do crazy stuff, Mm -hmm. crazy good stuff. But um, there was, I ended up meeting a man in the theater there. He came from Poland. Mm -hmm. His name was Jerzy Grotowski. Um, And he wrote a book called Towards a Poor Theater. And his whole world was basically architected by having a space, empty space, an actor and an observer. Mm-hmm. No costumes, no sets. I mean, he had, he had very sparse, so towards a poor theater, like break down all the walls, break down all the facade. We need to have the actor deliver a pure act. Every part of them on stage delivers a movement and a sound they've never done before mm-hmm. to be authentically presenting to the audience. And then to train that, it's super physical theater. And you train for hours and hours and hours. And I fell in love. I, I found, because I was a really physical kid. And this, I was swimming and I had this, this untrained martial arts ability mm-hmm. and really gymnastic. And I just, I fell in love with it. And I just, I just all, that's all I did, basically for four years. Um, and so he came to the States and we did these extraordinary seminars you know, for three days in a row. He'd wake us up at 2 a.m. in the morning, blindfolded, and we'd have to walk four miles in the rain, that kind of stuff. What was the purpose of that? Um, see the world differently. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Feel the world differently. Yeah. We, had, we, were, we were like hand in hand, so you had to trust the person in back of you and in front of you. Mm-hmm. Then, But then the purpose really was to, he called it burning your body, like burning the, um, the armor. And you'd come back after that walk, and we'd be in an empty space. There were mattresses, and there were some, like, sticks and, and some, some fabric. But, but he didn't really like any gimmicky. And then he, we'd all sit in a circle, and each person would come at, up into the middle of the circle and have to do a movement and a sound they'd never done before, mm-hmm. ever in their life. So then you're, like, thinking, okay, what did I do as a baby? And it's very, very profound um, experience. And I, basically we did that for four years straight. Yeah, that in and of itself sounds like therapy. I mean, all of these things that 
<coughs> he's walking you through, taking you out of your automated states and, and automated patterns that I think most of us live in 90 to 100% of our days. That's exactly what he was trying to do. Um, so I, I feel like those years, especially the last two, it changed really everything about who I was and how I wanted to be. And the, mm. I got really, really calm. Um, I got really, I guess the word that comes out is equitable. I mean, I saw everything as equitable. I wanted to, I wanted to kind of help everybody. I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I wouldn't break in line. I wouldn't, I wouldn't litter. I would try to stop other people if a fight started gently. I was just, I just wanted to try and create some peace because mm -hmm. it was so transformative to be able to, to meet yourself that way. Um, so Grotowski had a, just a profound effect. Uh, still does. I still use a lot of his work. I still teach some of his work in my... What's his name again? Yerzy. Yerzy. J-E-R-Z-Y. Grotowski. G-R-O-T-O-W-S-K-I, I think. Towards a Poor Theater. You can get it. It's back mm -hmm. in print. Amazing. Yeah. So that was, that was you know, there's a lot in college. There's that piece that brought me into the work I do now and, and led me to fuse theater with dance movement therapy and neurobiology. Mm -hmm. So that was where things started cooking, all my farm and my early religion stuff yeah. and the revolt and the, the Vietnam War and those people and then coming and bringing all those experiences into this theater. And you could explore anything. And we just, you know, we did a lot of cool plays, but, but there was so much rehearsal time that you really, you did, you broke down the armature that you had created to, you know, survive the social scene. Um, and you, you know, you were left with this kind of new body, new being. Um, and then I um, was very lucky. My grandfather um, agreed to pay for tuition for me to get on a boat and circumnavigate the globe. Wow. In my junior year. <laughs> oh, brother. Yeah. Yes. It was called World Campus Afloat. I forget what it's called now, but it was out of um, um, Orange, California, just east of L.A., Chapman College, now Chapman University. And it was the, one of the last trips where you went all the way around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, you know, that just brought me... Now, I'm, I'm doing, I mean, I'm choosing and selecting these things. So I think part of me, my earlier comment, and I don't know how many men out there have realized this or felt this, like I kept putting myself into more and more outer orbits. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was escapism. I don't, I don't really had much to escape from except the authoritarian that I had a real problem with. But I wanted more and more experience and I wanted to challenge myself more and more. And yeah. I just wanted to see more and more. I was, I was desperate to see more. So these things, it felt like it was coming from this place of curiosity and excitement in life. And oh growth. yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't sort of reckon. Uh, was it? I wasn't like banishing myself. I, mm. I wanted to get deeper in. Yeah. And I also was still of that head. I mean, Lewis and Clark was um, a great school because it was small enough, and they had a lot of visiting professors. So you know, you really had pretty rigorous academics if you chose to engage, which I did. They had yeah. a very unbelievably leading edge theater. We had Keith Jarrett in there. We had Yerzy Grotowski. We had um, the guy that started the Chicago Theater. I mean, it was a really great experience. 
but it was still like classroom-based, which is fine. Mm-hmm. It's like, you guys, we can learn other than just in the classroom. That's probably why I think I was drawn to the theater because you're mainly in a black box or in an improv studio all the time. Mm-hmm. But being on the boat, going around the world, I said, okay, that's outside the classroom. Only problem was, so our, our first, we left Lauderdale for Morocco, which is 11-day crossing, across the Atlantic. By the fourth day, I'm like, I'm going to classes on the boat, but we might as well be on land. It was just, I thought it was crazy. And I was taking six courses. Just because you were in class all the time? And yeah, and, I'm, and we're, 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 we're motoring. Not, yeah. a, it was a Chinese freighter. Okay. It's like 585 feet long, which is not that long with 100 Chinese crewmen and 380 students. Tight. Tight. <laughs> and of, the, of the 380 students, um, 100 were men. Of the 380, the other were 280 men. were women. Oh, bud. So that was, <laughs> and they were from all, literally all over the place, mainly from California. But I went to the dean. I wish I wanted to. I was trying to think of his name today when I read your your questions, but because I shout out to him, he was amazing. But I went to him and I said, "Look, I, I gave my whole rap," and he's like, and "He goes, you know, this is going to be harder if you want to do independent study for all six courses. It's going to be twice the work." I said, I know, but I, I okay, fine. You, you set it up, I'll set it up. You can approve it. I, I, I'm going to go to some of the classes, but I want to make my learning about where we're going. Mm. Like not about, you know, studying Rome on the way to visiting Morocco, even though Rome had an important part to play in Morocco's sure, development. But, so anyway, yeah. he, he bought into it. Yeah. So I did six, six courses. It was, you know, it was a long, it was like 14 months or something. No, I'm sorry. It was like eight or 10 months, but... Um, the point of that trip, that whole thing was you were on this, you're on your own little planet and the rules of the entire world didn't matter. It was the mm. rules of the boat, which meant it was the rules of the ocean. Mm. And it was my first time I got to study. I asked one of my extra credit courses was navigation, celestial navigation. So I was up there with the navigator and the pilot and it was just the, um, the captain. It was great. But on that trip, and I, you know, I went, I went through the entire world. And I, I was opened up to the fact, I know this, I hope it doesn't sound too corny, the more, the more visits we made to different countries, the more I realized that humans were, were so much more alike than different. Hmm. And that, and this is pre-guerrilla warfare, you know, so this is 75. I couldn't see it. I guess certainly in Africa, the guerrilla movement was, was building and it was secret, but it was building against, basically against the colonials. But, um... People were so kind. I mean, people who had nothing would invite you into their home and put you at the head of the table and give you the best piece of fish or the best piece of fruit. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just astounding to me. It blew my mind. And, you know, so, and I kept experiencing that. And I, you know, I was, I was a very, you know, very, very well-resourced, privileged kid for sure. But also my granddad and my dad were like, you know, you have to learn how to budget and, you can't just get everything given to you. So he paid for the tuition, but he said I had to pay for any money if to do what, any extra trips or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I think I was a lifeguard. I raised like 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. So I had $500 for eight months to go around the world. So, you know, I was very careful with my money because I wanted to bring my gifts. Yeah. So I hitchhiked everywhere. I walked everywhere. So I kind of joined mm-hmm. the lower ranks. A lot of the kids are like, off in the fancy buses to visit the waterfall and get right. the Private fancy car lunch. here and there. Yeah, I go whatever. to the hotels and stuff. I was just, I stayed in the bush and mm-hmm. I was on the coast the whole time. Well, what a great way to integrate country. with the communities. I mean, it's a oh totally God. different trip if you're on the tour bus versus yeah. And it, yeah. eating where the people are. 
Yeah, and just walking in it. So uh, don't get me wrong. It was even the worst parts are bitterly sweetly gorgeous, but there's nothing like, you know, you're on your own walking on a beach for two days, mm-hmm. eating pineapple and bananas, and then you come to a village and it's like right at that time, the crepuscular light that right at dusk, and you see the cook fires going near the mm-hmm. house outside and the little candles in the hut and everybody's singing and being really quiet. And you're like, I am one lonely mother, blank, blank, blank. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. I miss home. But it was... But it was like I chose it. I chose to miss home. Mm-hmm. So I'd put out my sarong and lay down and eat a little pineapple. I hardly ever eat pineapple anymore. I ate so much pineapple. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I would get invited in, you know. And yeah. um, it was just, I don't even know how else to explain it. I mean, I've been trying to write about it, but I really, words, I still don't really get the words. It's been helpful. About, I'm really glad you're about asking me About what this. aspect of it? About just this, this piece, like, yeah, well, just like this convergence of independence and, I feel like I was expanding and blossoming in a way, but I mean, I think it's, I think great writers have written about this all. It's a classic scene where you're all alone and you're hungry and you come to a village at nightfall mm-hmm. and you're hoping someone invites you in and you're wondering where you're going to go next and why the hell did I choose to walk in the dark on a beach in the middle of nowhere halfway across the world? Because mm-hmm. I did. Yeah. And here I am. You know, and so, so I mean, talking with you about it is actually helping. Yeah. So, so, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard to describe it, but, but that, what that did for me—that's another foundation layer for how I work now, which we're getting to. Um, so, I'll give you a, a concrete um, connection. When and this may be, uh, anyway, no, no preface. When I'm working with someone that's been that survived trauma, yeah. There's a point at which they need to and they usually want to but they don't think they do at which they need to discuss either with words or movement or sound or writing the worst parts of what happened to them and if we block them from doing that because we are too afraid to hear about their vulnerability and their horror and their pain then we create essentially an institutional mind in the survivor. They have to do the hard homework. They have to walk the beach alone, mm-hmm. you know, at night with, you know, seeing the fire, seeing people belonging to each other, and they feel like they don't belong to anybody. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they have to wallow in it, but in that moment, like when I was on that beach, when I, by the time I lay down and kind of whatever I did, I, I, I moved a lot because I was a mover and I would lie down on my sarong and then I would just look at the lights and I'd go, I am so lucky. They're lucky, but I'm lucky. Mm-hmm. So there was some access to resiliency if I stayed in my vulnerability long enough, mm-hmm. which is how I and others have evolved the trauma processing and the interventions for survivors so that you can put enough resource around them so that they can still see that scene mm-hmm. and be able to tolerate it and move through it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I know I would have never invented this stuff if I hadn't had everything I've discussed with you so far. Yeah. That kind of the layering of experience, the layering of, of mentorship, the people I've met that have taught me, and the kind of travel through, certainly through space. But, you know, when you do that, when you circumnavigate the globe like that, and you're not on the, the tour schedule and you're not working, mm-hmm. you're just observing and studying. 
you it's you go through you start time traveling too. You're you're not in linear time. You know, you're in non-linear time. I mean, it took me a good two years. When I got back to LA, we left Lauderdale, ended up in LA. It took me a good two years to actually come back to the States. Mm-hmm. I was here, but I wasn't. It wasn't a bad feeling, but I realized, oh my God, that was this is whiplash, man. Yeah. And I went way out into the orbit and came back. So the last piece about that trip <laughs> is I met a guy named Joseph Crandall. Okay. He was um, 18. I was about to turn 21, turned 21 in Hong Kong. And I saw him on the deck one day um, doing this form, this martial arts form. And he was, he's a little, little guy, very little guy. But the way he moved and the boat was doing pretty good rocking and it was like the boat wasn't even rocking. He's just gorgeous. He's such amazing balance. So I got up the nerve to talk to him at the end. I waited till he finished. And he had this Kansas drawl and he was very polite and he had this eager eyes and way wise beyond his 18 years. Um, and I said, we, you know, hi, who are you, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, I, is there any way you could teach me? He goes, teach you what? And his eyes changed a little bit. I said, I've always wanted to learn a form and do, this seems more internal. I took some Taekwondo and it was, I thought it was terrible. And he goes, okay. He goes, you mean you want to study this? I said, yes. He goes, no, you're too strong. You're too big and too strong. I don't think you'll learn this. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> so then it was cat and mouse for like th- get whatever, you three or yeah, four days. Like, going, huh? What do you mean I'm too strong? I can, I can be weaker. I can be smaller. I- <laughs> <laughs> so finally he agreed and we studied every day for six months in a hot little metal box on the foredeck was where they stored some of the lines and some of the canvas. And we worked out, you know, four or five hours at a time. Mm. And, and I know what, what do you call this movement? The, well, this this art was called Lohan, L O H A N. It's a Chinese Shaolin art. Um, but I didn't, you know, I wanted to start learning. Like, show me how to punch and kick and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And that was like within the first week. He goes, no, in about three months we can maybe throw your first punch. Where did this guy in Kansas or Kentucky pick this up? I'm going to tell you. Okay. Because I, I met his teacher. <laughs> I mean, so then there starts this lineage holding I want to discuss okay. also with, with other men. So two other men in the audience. So um, I didn't know then what it was. Now I know. He was teaching me Hatha Yoga. He was teaching me um, Feldenkrais. He was teaching me isometrics. Just bizarro, you know, hang from your fingers off the ledge for as long as you can to strengthen your hands. Mm-hmm. And just stretching like you would, I stretched until I was a rubber band. Mm-hmm. And then we started doing the martial aspects. And that's, I was, my body was so much more ready for it because I'd fought before, but I'd never had this sense of, basically he didn't say this till after he felt it. You do as little movement as possible when you're in a fight. Mm-hmm. And you, you always have the other person move first. And whenever they attack, you move in closer to them. You never move away, right? Mm. And when he started doing some of these manipulations, which are gorgeous, they're all, every move in Lohan and most good arts, the, an attack is also a defense and a defense is also attack. So when you block, you punch. When you punch, you block. Mm. And this kid was so fast. I couldn't, I didn't even see how his hands got to me, right? <laughs> and I would try to pound him, and he's this little teeny kid, and he'd be, be throwing me around and just laughing, giggling. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I got you, ha- you got bought in all the way. <laughs> so, I, you know, I studied with him, 
And I didn't know at the point at that time that when he said he would teach me, it was a huge commitment for him because that's how his teacher taught him. So he went back to do some of his stuff. I go back to Portland to finish up. I thought I was finishing up. And Joe calls me one day. He goes, I want to come and visit. And he needed to get away from home for sure. But he wanted to finish his training with me. So he, he went and moved in with me in Portland for a year and taught me a whole other level of series. And he said, okay, you're ready to meet my teacher, Benny. This is a Benjamin Sanchez who was basically a homeless kid outside of Mexico City. And the mainland Chinese who fled during the revolution to Mexico City took him in. So he grew up with these old Chinese guys. Mm. And he was taught calligraphy and acupressure, acupuncture, and all these, these art forms. And Benny was more muscly than Joe, but even smaller. Mm-hmm. And I went, so I went into the desert in Kansas and studied with him for three months. And um, he, he told me right away, because I think he knew I was going to guess it, you know, he was super, super competent, like very, very skilled. And he had a small school, there probably about six or eight guys. And no one ever sparred with him. He would set up for students to spar with each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he would set me up and um, he knew Joe had taught me but I don't think he knew how good a teacher Joe was or how good I had become. So, you know, when I sparred, it was like I was just very good. No one could get – I wasn't really learning anything. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to spar with him. And he goes, well, I don't spar with my two students. I said, well, I'm not sure why I'm here then with all due respect. And we had a couple of conversations. And then one day he said, um, all right, here's what we're going to do. You can spar with me, but I don't want to know when. So you attack me whenever you think it's appropriate, whenever you want to attack me, like if, you know, even with my back turned. Sure. So I'm like, is this a trick? Which it probably was. So like within five minutes, I, mean, I couldn't, I couldn't wait. I didn't care if I got beat up. <laughs> I wanted to feel his energy. I wanted to feel what he did when he, when he expressed these techniques, because they were energetic techniques. They weren't just structural techniques. And um, I jumped him somehow. And then all I knew, I don't really know how it happened, but I was standing up. He was standing up, but I was sitting. He was behind me, he had his legs over my thighs, and he had his, his arms around my neck. Mm. But it was like I was being held by a pillow. And sure. I don't know how, it was just so fast. So I started to flex, right, and he started to let go, and then we started rolling around the ground. Um, and then we did some punch blocks together. So he probably spent, in those three months, a total of maybe eight minutes on his body and his on my body. Mm-hmm. But I felt that it was a transmission. Mm. I, I got the learning from his teachers, from the Chinese, the Chinese teachers yeah. into my body. Because when I walked away from both times sparring with him, I was completely different. I mean, then even Joe was having a hard time getting to me. Yeah. And they all said, you know, not all, but him and Benny said, you know, Pum- my nickname is Pumpy. It's a long story. <laughs> P-O-M-P-I. They said, Pumpy, you know, this, you've got a gift. You know, you got it. Hopefully you'll keep. And that's when I got my belt. Mm-hmm. But I left college to do that. Okay. Right. You're in year six of the I 10 had, years now? Yeah, or? I had. No, it was only, it was only, it was only five and a half. Steve okay. Tyler was 10. But, but I do it. So what happened was I was offered by Joe. and he, was, he goes, you can finish college and come, or you can come now. You're ready now. Benny can meet you now. And this is when you would move up in the ranks. They have spiritual ranks. They don't give colored belts, but it's spiritual ranks. And I just, you know, I'm like, I got to do this. I had two credits left to go to graduate. Mm. Called my dad. My dad's used to these calls now. <laughs> he's like, all right. He goes, good for you. Good for you. But, 
you know, no support until you get back in college. I said, I'm not asking for support, Dad. Thank you so much. Don't worry about it. So I went out and did that, came back and graduated. Um, so that's kind of the buildup through college of the different layering fundamental experiences that brought me towards thinking about, you know, totally not, not planfully, I admit, but I'm a man of, um, I, they say I used to think too much. And I, I don't know if that, I think I was more trancing and kind of going into different meditative states, you know, more than I thinking. like that, yeah. Yeah, I was. I mean, it's probably because of the nature stuff at the, starting at the farm, I would kind of trance out, mm -hmm. but it felt normal. Um, but I, all of these experiences kept building this fabric, I feel like this fabric inside of me and also how I related to others, mm -hmm. right? Because I, I would, was changed monumentally by these early experiences. And, you know, leap forward, lots of stuff happened. But um, one day, because I was a theater guy, I needed money. And so I was, I did, I performed mime, like a 20-minute mime or two 10-minute pieces at a kid's birthday party. This is on Martha's Vineyard where I was living. Mm -hmm. And the adults afterwards came and said, we want to learn how to do that. I'm thinking to myself, mime takes two years minimum just to start to get it, right? And I studied with Francisco Reinders, who was a classmate of Marceau Marceau. Mm -hmm. So I had rigorous, rigorous training. I was not that good, but I loved it. I loved how it felt on my body, and I was super mm -hmm. physical. So I said, sure. You know, come on over. We'll do an hour session. I was going to charge him whatever, $25 or something an hour. The first person that came was a, a house mom of like 28 or 30. And the second person that came was a husband, like 36. Not, they, weren't, they weren't together. The third person that came was a woman in her like mid-40s. And I just started how I got taught. I would start having them move through the warming sequences. So you mm -hmm. isolate parts of your body and do rotations and extensions. And then you put things together just to get, you know, to move, to get things moving. And 15 minutes in, I am almost finished the warm-ups. They're weeping. They're crying. I hadn't said anything, except other than, you know, try your left shoulder, rest, long breath out, right shoulder. And they were weeping, and then they'd, I'd say, well, you like some water? Yeah. Tissues, sit down. 45 minutes later, they're telling me, like, their deepest wounds. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, my God. And I had already been in different types of therapy because I was interested in that. Mm -hmm. I was in Gestalt group therapy for all four years of my college hmm. or five years whenever I was on campus. Um, so I called a friend um, who was a buddy from Suffield who had gone to McGill and was studying, um, helping people that had severe hearing disorders, you know, when move through life. So he was really knowledgeable about all the clinical stuff. And I described the very scene I described to you and he goes, dude, you're doing dance therapy, man. You're doing dance therapy. You should probably check it out. I said, what's dance therapy? And I was, I was, I am a fabulous dancer. <laughs> you can ask, you can ask your mother. You can ask Marsha. fabulous dancer. Yeah, well, I learned in Africa. I was already okay. loved to rock and roll dance. Then yeah. I was in Ghana on a rooftop for 10 days with these guys. And they, they start at midnight and end at six and the band never stops. People are feeding and watering the band. They never stop. It's like 17 drums. Yeah. Yeah. So I had polyrhythms. So I was like, you know, I was like, oh, cool. I'm a dance therapist now. Anyway, so I call up the pro, it's Leslie College, now Leslie was in Cambridge. I get into that program, and I spend two years studying dance movement therapy. Mm. And um, we're starting to work with um, different types of psychologically distressed people. Um, did this intense thesis on um, schizophrenia and language dysfunction and manual gesture, 
um, trying to reduce the kind of the chaos of their verbal world by having them manipulate their hands mm-hmm. in specific ways mm-hmm. with blindfolds on, which, you know, schizophrenics don't necessarily like. No one likes to be blindfolded. Anyway, it worked. It wasn't yeah. controlled, but it worked really well. But it was a very difficult journey because a lot of the people that were the big shots at the school didn't think the therapy would work and didn't like my approach and thought I was crazy. Until I went to a super, super famous psychiatrist and showed him the thing. He goes, oh, my God, you've invented a schizophrenic intervention for schizophrenics. This is perfect. Because <laughs> I broke down every little, little segment of it. Yeah. But that gave me my first taste. I'd didn't been doing some really good writing. I had a couple of you know, small writing awards. But I really put this thing together, and it just started to flow. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can... I can write. I can. I can get ideas across, mm-hmm. and I'd been moving for two years yeah. in clinical in clinical format. So I was just, I was ready to go. Mm. Um, so my career is going to be essentially dance movement, theater movement, artist, working with mentally ill patients. And how old are you at this point? Um, so I was. I went there at 28, 29. So I think I graduated when I was thirty. Yeah. So up until this point, I'm hearing this this story of you bouncing from beautiful opportunity to beautiful opportunity. It didn't seem like much of a grand plan. No, that's so. <laughs> you're such a diplomat. No, I mean the, the grand plan was probably the 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 context rather than the con because the content were all these opportunities. I was privileged. I also had to work to get into most of these things and get through them and be successful. You had to, you know, you had to know. You really had to focus and know what you're doing, including not getting hurt or killed in some of the places I went, right? Sure. So, I mean, I, I paid my dues, but I was privileged. But the content is is how I wanted to move through the world mm-hmm. as opposed to just going to Africa or just studying dance with therapy. It was, I was keen and curious and just I was so inspired to get experiences that... Um, Felt like they were integrating I me and integrating my body and integrating art and and playing with the real power, the power of spirit, mm-hmm. the power of relationship. The power, I didn't I didn't quite know how to call back then, but the power of collective witnessing. Mm-hmm. I loved being in group, not just sitting around playing cards. I mean, doing stuff, mm-hmm. whether it was you know building something or moving together or making a ritual, or making a play. It was so powerful. It was transcendent. Yeah. Um, so I, I sought that out in many different forms. So it wasn't it wasn't well planned until I reach back now and you think about for me the farm, parochial school, Suffield Academy, Vietnam War, they all built this scaffolding for me to keep climbing on. I didn't know then until you know later it was after actually graduate school, my first graduate school, that I you know I wanted to be part of the healing solution. I wanted to take everything I had into figure out how to be a really humble, careful healer mm. and know that it wasn't me that was healing. I was just the conduit. I knew that along, but you have to be careful because there's a lot of egomaniacs that, you know, think they're the, that what, when someone gets better or gets transformed, it's them right. and their yeah. own ego. And that's, you know, that's the farthest thing from the truth. So I graduated. Um, I'd done a bunch of clinical work. I'd worked in East West Medical Center as an art movement therapist and martial artist. So I was already fusing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I lost my way. Okay. And I lost my way for 10 years. For 10 years. And, you're from and your, I almost, in your I almost died more than once. Okay. And I had a huge group of friends, but um, they really loved my money. 
Mm. I decided to be, I decided to go into house building and land development to raise money to build a spa for healers. Cause I noticed in myself and others that were working with clients that we were getting sick. I didn't know what it was. And I, we don't blame the patients, but somehow the pain of the patient was coming into us and we were taking that home. Mm-hmm. And it freaked me out, but it also got me really curious about, wow, maybe this is gonna be really important for healing communities over the next couple of decades if we figure out you know, how to heal ourselves before we go back and heal others type of thing. Yeah. But I figured I needed $5 million and I wanted to do it in Corfu which is an island in Greece, um, Kerkira, off of Italy, because for a lot of reasons. And I needed a piece of land where you, at the top of the land, your view was unobstructed. You could see forever. Uh-huh. So you could do vision quest, okay. just work with vision, both physical vision but spiritual vision. It also had to have a forest, and it needed to have a river and the ocean. So where are you going to buy something like that without you know, having a whole lot of money? A good amount of so cash, So Greece, yeah. but you know, I, anyway... It wasn't a fantasy, but I was, you know, I wasn't, I was ill-equipped to, to do it, and but I wanted to start raising the money, so that's mm-hmm. what I did. And I did, I built beautiful houses, and I did great developments. They were all minimal density, but I made a shitload of money. I made a lot of money, in those days for that standard. And all of a sudden, I had all these friends, and they sure. loved drinking the champagne. But, and um, so it's it's part of it's you know, I I mean a lot of men out there, you're probably when you're. You know, just what did you do between your 30s and your 40s, right? And everyone has different trajectories. But I could have, would have, should have stayed on the path of healing and the dance movement therapy and starting to work on the trauma because I was really interested in that. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to take, I was build, building a family, and but I got lost. And, you know, the, I made my first, whatever, almost a million, and it felt really good. And I realized when you have that kind of resource, you can invest it again and make more if you're careful. Mm-hmm. I was untrained as a developer, but I learned. I learned. You know, I learned it sort of. You know, at the stove, in the land, and I was good with land. And I just made more and more, and I was like, okay, this is my last deal. Everyone was the last deal. Everyone was the last deal, and I basically had stopped. My marriage was falling apart; it was pretty much over. And then a guy calls me, a quote, famous developer from, um, uh, right off of Big Sur. What's the town that Clint Eastwood was mayor of? Carmel. Thank you, Carmel. Yeah. And this guy had, he claimed he had the last private deeded access to the part of a redwood forest. And he wanted me to help him develop it because he had heard, I had done a development in Mexico, which to this, I mean, New Mexico, which is I'm still sad about, where I convinced all of the native population to work with this big developer because we would take care of the land. We took care of the land, but he turned out to be a bad guy and, and kind of screwed them. And I was part of convincing the community to work with him. So I got that on my soul. So this other guy heard of me and he wanted me to come out and do the same thing. And I said, yes. And I'd been to the Redwoods um, many times and I'd been to Carmel. I'm like, I was saying, God, you're developing a Redwood forest. Well, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe it'll be good for Carmel or whatever. So I go out and um, I was, I mean, I admit I was nervous and kind of upset with myself the whole way on the plane and driving to Carmel. But I, you know, here I am, a big shot. Got into some Gucci Inn and with a wrought iron French table and mm. fancy pastries, and get up. Like, well, he calls me when I get into town, and he he said, "Listen, I got my helicopter ready. You want to fl- do a flyover so you can see it from the air? It's going to be much better when we meet tomorrow." And I didn't like this guy's tone. You know, I feel I felt yeah. like he was just going to be the vibe. really really controlling. Right. Okay. But I said yes. You know, did one more deal. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I thought I was going to make on the deal, but 
And he goes, and I said, no, you know, I'm going to walk around town, talk to people. I didn't really, wasn't going to do that, but I told him that. I need to go for a run and stuff. He goes, okay, fine. You're going to really miss a great flight. I said, sorry. So anyway, I go to do my thing, go to bed, get up in the morning, come to my little cafe table on the property. There's a folded newspaper and beautiful espresso and everything. I sit down, take the first sip of the espresso, and I open up this tri-folded newspaper. It's the local whatever times. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of the paper on the front page, front center, is about a you know eight by eight picture of the re of a redwood forest you know looking right down on it from the sky and there's a big plume of black smoke coming out of the middle of the forest and then I read the byline and I forget this guy's name Peter someone dies in helicopter flyover wow wow you were that close to getting on that helicopter with him for all the wrong reasons mm -hmm. and literally everything like the weirdest thing happened, like all the good things that I had been doing, because those 10 years were, were bad. I mean, I, I blame myself. The marriage was wrong to get into to begin with and all the developing and all the kind of greed and accumulation. But my mind went right to um, Grotowski hmm. and mime and the theater and the revolution and all these early, and all the dance movement work I'd done with these colleagues. And my mind rushed back to that. And like I was, I was, I didn't know, I was weeping you know, until the tears were hitting the paper. And I just, all of a sudden that was in slow motion, so I just folded this paper up. Yeah. And I put some money on the table and I got in my car and I drove to San Luis Obispo on the coastal highway at probably like 15 miles an hour. Everyone was honking at me. I was just like, I can't believe it, I can't believe it, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. Oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? How do I apologize? What do I do? I need yeah. to be forgiven. Yeah. Slept on the beach that night, drove back to the Redwoods. Slept with the Redwoods, curled up around them, begged their forgiveness. And I'm like, I got, I got to get out now. I can't do another deal. What, you, you know, don't, don't go down this road anymore. Mm. Um, and I started to feel some strength again. I felt kind of, I don't know. I felt like I'd been living in Greece or something. Like, as in Greece, like in lard. Like, like I was and, tarnished. Yeah. And so I felt some expulsion of that. And, you know, I got back home and... Um, and basically made a lot of very, very difficult changes mm -hmm. and went to Cambridge and Boston. And I had enough money to investigate whether I really wanted to get back into mental health. And, you know, I had been a consultant in a number of ways with development. So I just started interviewing everybody in Boston, anything to do with mental health including the, the Department of Mental Health's commissioner. I got into, it's amazing who will talk to you if you beg and <laughs> buy him a cup of tea. So I really got the lay of the land. And they said, you know, the thing you have to do um, is, you, you know, if you're interested in mental health, and I was interested in acute distress. And I don't know why. Um, I, I was early, I was interested in how do you reduce acute psychic... Acute distress being like a traumatic people, experience. Yeah, or even just people that when you're really, really distressed, you get okay. bad news or you get... You just you're in angst or existential or you know including like kind of you know acute depression where you're just kind of like the person's feeling really dysfunctional and they've got they're beautiful folks they're all beautiful folks they got they have a lot of resources but they can't get to their resources and I yeah. so I was, I was in how do you reduce toxic stress or uh, how do you reduce psychic stress is how I was thinking about it at the time mm -hmm. those words were good back then at that time this was now 1990. Mm -hmm. And so I talked my way into a, a almost two-year internship, I'm putting quotes around internship, at Massachusetts Mental Health Center, which is Harvard Medical School's trauma, psych trauma center. 
as old, old school, old bastion psychiatrists where you go in, you see a client, a patient, and then you present to him, to the next doc. The next doc would rip you a new one. Then you two would present to the next high up doc. Super patriarchal. Mm. I was in heaven. Go ahead, yell at me, scream at me. I mean, I, I had no training, dude. I mean, I had my master's degree. No one would take me on. Yeah. No one would take me on to the medical director. Saw me. I went in, in and out of those doors like 15 times, mm -hmm. just talking to everybody I could. The head, the head nurse loved me, but she goes, I'm going to, you know, you're supposed to be immatriculated into a, a master's program. You just have an internship, and you're not, you're just, you're a guy that just walked off the street. I can't, <laughs> I can't so do I, anything for you. I man. finally, the medical director, who was very dapper and was one of the most forward-thinking psychiatrists, psychiatrists at the time, at least from that faculty, saw me come banging through the red, the double doors, and he, he goes, um, hey, come over here. Is your name Macy? I said, yeah. He goes, how many more times are you going to go through that door? I said, I don't know, sir, as long as, I guess as much as it takes. Who are you? He goes, I'm the medical director. Get in my office. And he grilled me for like two hours. Yeah. And I could see, I could see I was like wearing him down. And he was very, very curious. <laughs> and he goes, well, I'm the medical director, so I can make my own rules about who I bring on campus. So go down to HR. I'm going to call him now. You're going to sign up. You get all your credentials and everything. And you come back here tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. um, and then he, tomorrow morning, he was a different man. He's like, these are the things you can't do. If you do them once, you're out. And you're going to be out on misbehavior, and I'm going to tell everybody in town that you're screw-up, so don't screw up. He switched modes. He went from curious Well, he had to go to medical director because he was taking a chance now on Now he's too. medical director again, yeah. And, you know, you can put all of this up to my great charm or his wonderful empathy, but I worked for free for two years. Mm -hmm. I told him I wouldn't take any pay because I could basically afford to do that. Yeah. Right? And that's when I... That's when all, every, all these experiences I've brought to the table so far... Everything went into that, mm -hmm. and I became who I was supposed to become. Yeah. I, I lived and breathed preparing myself to be with people that had horrific things happened in their life. I mean, in the first year, I don't know how many evaluations I did where people walked in off the street. They didn't know their name. They had no idea, ID. They, they had a trench coat on. They didn't have any clothing underneath. Mm -hmm. And I had to sit in a room with them, figure out kind of who they were, what they needed, and how to present the case and start getting them into treatment. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get enough of it. I would have done it 24-7. Yeah. I mean, it was just, I found, you know, I found my, my, tr my tribe. And there were great healers in that hospital. There were a lot of really mean healers mm -hmm. that tried to use command and control. And I never did that once, partly because of my martial arts experience. Because there were no medical detect metal detectors back then. So I started helping people evaluate people as they walked through the door before you got close to them. So I, I got to do a lot of specialty stuff. They used to send me out into like other hospitals to evaluate a patient to see where that patient was safe enough to move. How would you figure and that I didn't out? Have any, what would you look for? You, well, you do a mental status exam. I do a okay. body status exam. You mm -hmm. got to get relational. You got to see where they're oriented to time and space. Mm -hmm. and, and because of your vast experience and all these different things, you had a better sense well, for that's it? That's my current theory, <laughs> Chase. I mean, or they I, thought, hey, I, here's well, I this was, kid, let's put him I was, this guy. I was, uh, yeah, I was deeply serious. Okay. And I, was, I wanted to be deeply professional mm -hmm. for, because I started taking my own oath you know, not to do harm. Mm -hmm. But I, wasn't, I had no fear. I mean, if I started, if I started fear, it was a, it was I have a sense of caution that this person could be dangerous, and then we had to keep our distance, and we had to maybe bring in higher levels of restraint, and they use restraints all the time. I was able single-handedly, at least in my unit, I reduced tons of restraints every week. 
mm-hmm. right? And I hadn't had any training in it except for this fabulous martial arts I had. Yeah. Right. Um, and that, but I this time too, I'd gotten into another the, the next level of martial arts. So I had two new teachers who were world renowned, and I was working out with them all the time. So yeah, all this stuff got together, but I was able to apply it to humans. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I used some of the same talents to build the house and be a developer, right? Because I love to build stuff, but I was working the wrong material. Yeah. You know. And so trauma started to become more and more discussed. Mm-hmm. And I became more and more um, exposed to it and felt I had a, a, a good sense of how to work with the client in a relationship to reduce the sophistication of trauma because trauma can hijack you out of the room all the time. It can take away your present moment, mm-hmm. right? So I, I started learning without, there wasn't a lot of literature. I was just beginning to start. And I got in on a lot of groundbreaking studies. Boston is a you know, a, a mecca of innovation. Right. And the 90s was a decade of the brain. Yeah. So by uh, 98, I talked my way into um, William James Hall's neuroscience department, Harvard uh, Graduate School of Arts and Sciences Neuroscience Department. <laughs> and because uh, I wanted to study, I wanted to do, I wanted to figure out how the brain uh, diminishes psychic pain if that's what the brain does. Uh, so some of the physiology is the stuff yes. you were actually seeing. In yeah, patients. I was seeing yeah. a lot of you know thousands of patient hours at this mm-hmm. point. And there's a guy there who's another incredible part of my life named Stephen Coslin. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a professor. He he grad his first PhD was at 16 from Berkeley. He's the scientist that Whoa. figured out how the mind brain projects 3D imagery. How it gets created, yes. Pretty smart Just a light light topic, right? (laughs) I think he was full professor at Harvard at 25 or something. But I I got an interview with him, and I asked him about his work. He asked me about my work. I told him about my Tai Chi and about trying to diminish the pain with Tai Chi or movement. And he's like, and I knew we had a a John T. and Catherine MacArthur grant to study mind-body medicine, and no one had, Mm. no, no significantly important university or professor had ever taken that on because it was considered total woo-woo, mind-body medicine and how the mind and body are connected and all that stuff. Not brain, but mind-body. And so he dug it. He said, I love this. He goes, if you get in, I'll take you as my student and I'll take you into my lab. And I said, I'll do anything. He goes, no, no. He goes, I pay, I'd never use lab rats. He was very different back then. Mm. He was the only professor, no slave labor. If you come into my lab, I'm paying you. And since I'm paying you, you will be expect you. I'm yeah. going to be expecting a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I got in. I don't know how I got in. It was a visiting scholar program, so it was different than a regular program. And I went to my first class called Current Topics in Neuroscience. And there were six or eight kids in the classroom. Most of them were um, like 28. Maybe one was 30. I was 40. Yeah. So I was more of a mid-career learner. Except for prepositions and conjunctions, I didn't understand one word the entire two hours. I had no idea what they were talking about. It was all neuro stuff. Mm. All the terminology. Yeah, and so, I mean, I'm kind of burying my soul a little bit here, but William James Hall is six floors. So I rode down the elevator, walked out back. I I could hardly catch my breath. I just walked out of the classroom as fast as I could. I didn't even say goodbye or thank you to Steve. I was like about to cry in the classroom. like, there's no way I can do this. And I go lean against the concrete wall and start crying going what have I done what have I done why did I get into this I shouldn't do that I'm not I'm too stupid which has been a theme for me my whole life is like I'm not smart enough to do this so then I got kind of pissed at myself and I went to the medical Harvard Medical's library Countway for like two weeks 
I just started studying, just learning <laughs> just the language. Cards of the term. And there was some yeah. point at eleven at night, in one of those nights, where I read an, a current topic on a whole experiment with fMRI scanning, mm. and I got the whole thing, and I went, "Oh, so that's how they do it. So that's how they decipher." And all of a sudden, it was like, like, like the mass mental, the Harvard um, Trauma Center was like, "Oh my God, I think I'm meant to do this too." Mm. And I knew I was never going to be a neuroscientist. It's very, very complex and. There's a lot of fake neuroscientists out there. You have to be, you know, pretty deep all the time. But I got the base. I got all of the basics, and then I got to be in all these experiments, which yeah. were pretty amazing. We did the first electric shock study on humans since they shut that one down back in the '60s. Mm. The, the the client, the, the subject, gets to pick their level of shock. Okay. Right. So it was, it was all approved, but <laughs> and then I was measuring all these things that were happening. So we were trying to figure out how pain attenuates. Oh, wow. How does pain get diminished? Like, okay. And what's self perception? And so even when you self choose pain levels, like so all that stuff. Yeah. We got a couple good papers out. I started to get a bunch of ideas. So I finished that program, and then I was matriculated into a PhD program, and um, I got to take most of my Harvard credits to my PhD program, and. The, then I was studying essentially um, how to track trauma. Mm -hmm. And now you've and worked. And what trauma does. Yeah. And what trauma does to whole groups. So I ended up doing an, an epidemiological dissertation because I was looking at prevalence rates of, of trauma in different populations mm -hmm. that I'd already worked with clinically mm -hmm. and came up with some pretty groundbreaking stuff. And at the same time, I, I, then I, by then I'm out of money. And so I got a job with Medicaid, mm -hmm. sitting behind a desk. It was my only real job my whole life where you punch the clock and yeah. all that stuff and get the paycheck. And I got the, <laughs> you know, got the headphones on and I'm doing reviews with patients and clients and stuff. I lasted about a year and a half, but they let me crawl around in the Medicaid database. So I was searching through 380,000 subjects. They let you? Yeah. <laughs> no, they let me. I had full granted full access. <laughs> the bosses of that first, it was the first managed care organization, MCO, uh -huh. in the country. So it was managing the mental health benefits for Medicaid. Okay. Medicaid, as you know, for people that are living in poverty. Sure. Which at that time was 9000 a year. Okay. And I was called an intensive clinical case manager, which meant I had 127 people on my caseload. They all had utilized more than $500,000 a year in behavioral health benefits. That's not their med medical. Their medical was even higher. Mm -hmm. So imagine the cost of that. Wow. And none of them were getting better. Right. They were just kind of maintaining illness. I'm not blaming anybody because we know a lot more about this now. And lots of things have changed to the better. Anyway, long, long story short, I asked my boss if I could do the dissertation, crawl through the database, and try something no one had tried before, which was if someone came into the hospital, they were supposed to go in for three days. And you get three days charge. Then you're discharged, you get the hell out. And I, was, I said, you know what? Let's put him in the hospital for one day. Then let's put him in an observation unit for 24 hours, 23 hours. Then let's put him in partial. Then he'll probably need to go back to the hospital for two days. Then we'll put him back in partial. So I was doing this thing called titration, dose response. So because insurance companies hate, and I don't blame them, authorizing more than one service at a time. And I was asking my company, Medicaid, to authorize like four services in a week. Yeah. And I said, it's going to be more expensive for the first six months, and then it's going to drop to well below what they've been utilizing. And sure enough, it did on 67 patients. Mm. 
So we, so then I'm on to something, right? And yeah. we're on to something. But um, it didn't last because the uh, we lost the contract to another managed care organization, which I won't I won't speak of because they're alive today. But um, they didn't like you know they just they couldn't tolerate my style, so right. I left. But I left because I had in my back pocket this fabulous job. So I left a fully benefited full time position at Medicaid to work with a nonprofit in Boston for this golden opportunity for $25,000 a year. <laughs> and I had to carry a beeper on my hip and respond to all of the trauma in the Boston public schools, in the schools and in the neighborhood, the 15 neighborhoods. There's 120,000 kids in the school. And what uh, consists, what, what did trauma mean at that time? Suicides, homicides, non-fatal penetrating wounds, riots, racism, automobile accidents, you know, any sudden violent Event. So you're coming in onto the scene and you're dealing yeah, with Yeah, but obviously one man, yeah. one woman, one person can't cover that. Yeah. But my boss, who's great, who's amazing, and she trusted me because I came from Medicaid and she'd seen me present and stuff. So she goes, You're a hotshot trauma. You can do this, right? And I'm like, Well, let me see what I can think up. But I, you know, one guy within a week, I'm like, the beeper's going off every five minutes. Yeah. Right. So I built a team. So I started to build teams. And I built more teams and I built more teams of teams. And we ended up with a lot of teams almost 800 people in different teams throughout all the neighborhoods in Boston mm-hmm. to respond to the trauma. So once, and that was kind of my invention mm-hmm. before we had, you know, early community engagement type of stuff yeah. and network analysis, but I, and it was powerful, Chase. You should have seen these guys. And most of the people on my teams, mm-hmm. on the community-based teams, most of them, some of them had high school degrees. They were people that had an understanding of their own community's trauma. Right. And they had lived experience of their own trauma. And all they needed was some guides mm-hmm. and some, you could call it training, but what I call is transformational experiential learning. And we get them in a room for two days and I sh- showed them the protocols I was inventing and we, they tried and we role play and role play and those guys love to role play. Yeah. They're real life, man. They'll, they'll jump right into an improv seat right away. Yeah. So we're cutting our teeth on each other, right? And all of a sudden I had this really, this force of people in Boston that for 10 years made a huge difference till the mayor changed. That's another story. But that all got me to a place where I was responding to pretty significant levels of trauma around the clock. And I brought, because I am a lineage holder, believer, like Mm. I've got taught by these other men and some women, when you get your time to to transfer knowledge, make sure you bring in really brilliant people. It can't Mm. be all about you. You want people to hear, even if you're the best that you are at what you do, and people would follow you to the ends of the earth, I wanted them to have other people. So I had other colleagues I knew of who were world world renowned, and I brought them to Boston to train my team. Yeah, and that was cool. But some of the times I couldn't even be in the training room because my beeper was going off so much. Right. So one of these guys who was basically in charge of the entire European psychological trauma network, Otley Dirgrov, lives in Norway. He came over to to teach a specialty group of mine on what to do with eyewitnesses that have seen terrible stuff, how to mm-hmm. how to clear their channels, so to speak, so they mm-hmm. they don't have that trauma out of the traumatic images in there. And I was being as polite as I could, but it was we were in the middle of a suicide cluster and a bunch of homicides. I kept leaving, and so he had my buddy, another world-renowned guy who was there at the time helping to teach, talk to me at lunch. And Roger Solomon, who's one of the best psychologists in the world, trauma psychologist, he says, he goes, Robert, you're out of the classroom all the time. I said, I know, Roger, I don't know what to do. I explained to him, he goes, okay, I get it. I'm going to have to explain that to Otley. So, you know, let me talk to Otley. So... 
I had lunch the next day with him, and I apologized. And he was, of course, they're very, the Norwegians are pretty formal. But, <laughs> you know, but I could see, his, he was, he kind of understood, but he was, he felt a bit affronted. And I said, you know, this is not about you. Can I tell you what I'm doing? So the hour-long hour lunch turned into two hours, and I explained to him my, the network and the training and the response, and he's like, he's like, oh, my God. He goes, do you have anything written on this? I said, not yet, but I can show you a bunch of stuff. And, and he couldn't go. I wanted to come and do a go-out with us, like on a call. Yeah. So fast forward two years later, it's 1999, and Turkey has their two biggest earthquakes ever, mm -hmm. 90 days apart, the Mamara earthquakes. Mm -hmm. Otley calls me up and says, can you come to Turkey and do the child, children's mental health? We have 100,000 plus homeless kids, and they're not behaving well. <laughs> <laughs> And so oh, that Lord. was the beginning. My wife sometimes says that was the beginning of the end. Mm -hmm. My wife does the work with me, um, Dickie Johnson Macy. But uh, she kind of sent me over there with an idea. It was really her idea. And all of this work we've been doing with expressive therapies and trauma, we basically built an intervention. We had parts of it built. I went over, checked everything out, went all over Turkey, came back. We called the United Nations, UNICEF. We said we need $800,000. Yeah. That's our kit. To, to take to Turkey. Now, that wasn't our payment. That was to produce these kits that would help these kids go through trauma, mm -hmm. rich tra rituals to de decrease their trauma. And they were like, you know, at the time, and UNICEF is a pretty pretty great organization, but they're like, can't you just do found objects like they are in Sarajevo or wherever, just pick up rocks and shard glass and make puppets out of us? And no, we're not going to do that with kids. You know, yeah. we're not, we're not going to do that. We have to do something actually the opposite. Anyway, they said yes. And we were over there for about three years. Mm. And we studied the effects, and then it went from there to really all over the globe yeah. with us doing this international trauma response and learning from survivors all the time and learning the cultural pieces, what, is, what are called cultural idioms of distress and eustress. Mm. So understanding in different cultures how pain is perceived and how they see the reduction of pain. Because, mm. you know, white man's medicine, as great as... Some people say it is, and, and I, Western medicine is fun, absolutely great. It's amazing. But you have to fuse it with other things if you want to be relevant to different cultural groups. And Just we, to be able to communicate with them, but also to understand their pain and how they yeah. express. I mean, we had, we had in-country in people who were leaders who mm. we would train with our stuff, yeah. right, who knew, who, who just had big heart and had experienced a lot of trauma themselves. We'd show them our, our toolkits and our intervention, do the improvs with them, get them up to speed. And then we had, um, we had translators. So we were able to get all this across, but I'm talking about both the context and the content the, of the interventions um, had to be relevant for the people that were you know, in that culture that had been hurt, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So that was of uh, 90, 90 99 to um, 2012. Yeah. And then I, we backed off on the international stuff and um, basically started focusing on domestic terrorism and mass casualty and kept doing consultancies with different organizations around reducing violence and, and trying to treat the exposure to trauma and violence. Mm -hmm. um, so as I kept working and... And studying, and and, exp and we're, do we're doing studies, and we're not, we don't turn out papers like most places, but 
we use other people's research and we do some of our own to validate whether this stuff works or not. We began blending all these the martial arts, expressive therapies. My wife is a singer and musician and an absolute great dancer, psychodramatist. Mm-hmm. So we use multimodal inputs yeah. to do the healing. Now, yeah. you spent years, it seems, working with really, I want to say severe trauma. Yeah. Ethnic cleansing, civil war. Yeah. Um, priest abuse in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, what's called complex trauma in kids. So kids that have been, you know, hurt terribly and raped and held down and had horrific things done to them for years and years at a time. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we went into the deep end. Mm-hmm. And are these, I mean, are these tool kits that, that everyone essentially can benefit from? Yes. Yeah. It's not just restricted to people who have a certain level of trauma. No, that's, well, oh, yeah. So on the, on the client side, um, that's a great question, Chase. This works for people that have no trauma at all because part of the model, which is now accepted internationally, the public mental health model is mm-hmm. what's called tier one or the basic, if you think of a pyramid or a triangle, tier one are universal, universal interventions you give to anybody to, to actually increase mm-hmm. resilience, increase something called stress inoculation so you don't freak out as much when mm-hmm. you get exposed to quota stimuli that's going to freak everybody out, right? Yeah. Um, and just strengthens you and strengthens your ability to stay in relationship to others. That's the primary, right. the primary antidote to traumatic stress and pain. And I would say to all pain, mm-hmm. all psychic pain, the primary antidote is connection. Yeah. It's attachment. Mm. And every, thankfully, everybody agrees on that now, even if we're from hugely different disciplines. Um, so not only... Could the, the, the tier one, kind of the universal application, would go for anyone, someone with deep trauma and someone with no trauma at all, but the people that teach it or facilitate it don't have to be PhDs. They don't have to be. Yeah. And in fact, in many of the countries we worked, there was no, there was one psychiatrist for the whole country. Yeah. So we, we adopted, adapted, evolved, sculpted, you know, interventions with the local people there. Yeah. And I do want to, we have to shout out to, um, Dr. Joop de Jong, who's out of Amsterdam, and he's still part of our team. We're still part of his team. He really invented transcultural psychiatry. So he's an anthropologist. His wife is an anthropologist. So we, we learned the anthropological approaches from them, and that's what we use here in this country, which is a lot different than many, many people's approaches. How so? That you, it's a, well, there's, wormhole, it's, it's a, you know, it's, and I'm not, you know, I'm the first one to say I'm not an anthropologist. I'm a wannabe anthropologist. Yeah. I've learned a lot from them, and I've studied it. Um, so just a quick example is it's, it's how you ask questions, mm-hmm. where you ask them, when you ask them, and to whom you ask them. So the anthropological assessment or survey is just very, very different mm-hmm. than the Western scientific method. So we try to combine those. Yeah. Well, I'd love to, to sort of take this journey, this gorgeous story that you've laid out for me, and your work, and look at a few ways that you think Perhaps this applies generally to this question of how someone becomes a man, what that means. And, and maybe it can be applied to the context of do we see a problem with men or masculinity in America today? Well, yeah, I read your prep notes and I, I was very, I was stunned and excited about those two questions. Because I th- have thought about this for a long time, those, 
the idea of those two questions. And there's a lot of discourse among men in my world. I, I've been able to become, build, carefully construct two different little tribes mm-hmm. um, that have really been, really helped, saved me from certainly my vicarious trauma and from aging and going, okay, who am I now as a man in my 50s or a man in my 60s? But when I read your per- beautifully put questions, I'm like, those are really well done questions. And I, I don't know if, if I'm qualified. I don't know how I'm going to answer those questions. So I guess I've never seen it, the question in writing. It's always just been kind of wrapping it out. So mm-hmm. that's why, I, and I appreciate your patience. And the audience, if you do listen to this, I appreciate your patience. I wanted to build my narrative, mm-hmm. which is a narrative of other people interacting with me, especially the group work. So most of that's group work. Yeah. All of the different stories I've told you. Because when I try to answer, you know, how do you become a man? Um, I think very, I'm going to answer very concretely. And I think this is true. And some of this is certainly evidenced or evidence-based. No matter your culture um, or your religion, you know, or even your upbringing, I think becoming a man or becoming the gender or the the entity you want to become. So I have a colleague here who's, who's a man and who's heterosexual, but mm-hmm. really refuses to be called a man because he feels that's, that doesn't really define who he is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, 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 but as you develop in terms of the entity you want to be both sexually and gender wise, um, you have to get connected to nature. And I think if there's something now that's, terribly terribly urgent i i won't i can't judge i'm not i can't say there's something wrong with male or manhood but i can tell you that we're as we are so detached from nature and this is most of this is my wife's work i i had so much influence from the farm and from being in nature but she's really taught me the relevance of this that and being connected to nature on a if not daily every other day you know throughout your life Mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean you have to climb the highest mountain but and then being connected in nature with the younger men mm-hmm. and being connected in nature with your baby boys and girls. You know, you take them outside, you, you climb the hills, you walk in the woods, you've, you've got to be, and maybe this sounds simplistic to all of you, but one, try it, and two, you can certainly research this and look it up, but we have to be connected to nature. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the question about how to be a man and be a nonviolent man um, you know, it's quite complex. Yeah. Everybody has a lot of probably good theory and some good ideas. But I'm I'm right now at 64, and it's partly because of um, how our country's struggling to discuss almost anything. I'm looking for golden threads, and I'm not trying to be a savior, but what are some common contents, contexts that we can discuss that are, in a sense, irrefutable? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Gandhi said, he said the big, his big T, the big truth is that all human beings are connected and we're much more alike than not alike. Mm-hmm. And that, in fact, we're connected. He didn't say this for a long time because he was really an expert in geopolitics and trying to move, you know, huge systems. But we're also connected to nature. Mm-hmm. And we have, a, we have a, um, a deep, inherent connection to other humans. Yeah. And so if we acknowledge that as a starting point... And so let's say you're a man, whatever man means to you, being in nature and figuring out how to be connected and being able 
to do whatever you have to do. You know, I think it's really good to have exercises, to do exercise and workout, but I'm talking about a soul, soul, spirit, physical, mental workout where you can very quickly sense that you're in pain, mm -hmm. that you're in emotional, psychic pain, and try to find the root of it, which most of the time is going to be a sense of isolation or disconnection. And then look around and figure out how to reduce isolation and increase connection as a man, to other men, to children, to the trees, if that has to start there, where it is, you know, mm -hmm. to your favorite object. But objects aren't going to be, rest, they don't give you the reciprocity that a human's relationship gives you. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, most men and women today, to get ahead, to get the big job, to get the raise, we practice really hard. But things we're practicing give us more greed, more money. Well, and oftentimes the things that we practice are is this armoring, is this type of competition well, that actually isolates point. us more in certain ways. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's usually in the service of getting ahead. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, you've heard my story. I mean, I'm, first of all, I'm very privileged. Um, but I've worked, my, I've worked my butt off my whole life. Um, you know, and I had to, after I almost lost my way and died, you know, I had to rethink how I wanted to interact with the world. And I do like my nice things, and I do want to leave something to my children, and I do like creature comforts for sure, but not at the expense of not knowing myself. Mm. So I can practice how to make more money. You know, I was practicing making more and more money with developments, but I was got to a point where, you know, I have five million. Maybe I can make another five million with one deal. All I got to do is develop the goddamn redwood forest, <laughs> one of the most ancient tree stands in the world. That's going to be okay, right? And I'm not, you know, I'm not not going to say anything about anybody else, but I, in terms of what you're going after, but um, you know, you read 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 some of the great ones, the prophets and the philosophers. They'll all tell you that. Uh, that the accumulation of stuff does, doesn't get you any closer to knowing yourself. And as Chase just observed, it many times armors you so you don't feel pain. And when you don't feel pain, in my opinion, and we're talking about men, and I know this goes across genders, if you don't feel pain or you're not practiced at feeling pain, at knowing where your pain is and where it comes from, you're not a man. You're still a child. Mm -hmm. you, you even can become you know, selfless in the wrong way where you're isolated, and the only way you know how to survive is to stay isolated, which gets you more and more irritable with the people you love the most. Then you're pushing people away. Then you're picking up the bottle or you're picking up the whatever. So I think becoming a man, you know, just for me at 64, trying to write some books about this stuff, I want to stay really clear and simple because um, you can certainly be philosophical about this, but yeah. here's my formula, gentlemen. You got to connect to the earth, to connect to nature, and you have to create tribe, man tribe, and then, you know, all gender tribe, and interact with them, especially when you're feeling the most hurt and the most isolated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know how many of you have seen um, Man on Fire with Denzel Washington, but I move, love that movie for a lot of reasons. I know it's very violent. But he said when he's teaching this little girl how to swim, he keeps asking her a very important question. Are you trained? Are you untrained? So I say to all men out there, and I've been using this with myself over the last 10 years, am I a trained man or an untrained man? Because trained men figure out how to keep connecting, figure out how to notice and know their pain, and figure out what to do with that pain and that isolation. And real men who are trained men 
stay in contact with nature and contact with relationships. And then I think most of the rest of it takes care of itself. I mean, the gender norms and how men see themselves are changing radically. Mm-hmm. And, and you could say that's only true of certain sectors or certain ages, probably, but whatever those sectors or ages are, your sector and your age has to interact with those other men. So I think opening up the conversation is going to be really important. And I think we could probably spend years philosophizing. I mean, Iron John was awesome. There's lots of sort of how to become a man stuff, which I'm not an expert in by any means. But I think we need to have, as a, as a brotherhood, as, a, as the man tribe, let's just say here in America, all colors, we have to, if we want, it would be a lot of fun to agree on some basic training guides to yeah. become a man and stay a man that are, that are not onerous. They're not they're radically inclusive. They don't leave anybody out, and anybody can do it, mm-hmm. which I just mentioned. You know, um, I love that idea. Good. Where do we start? Let's start. Let's start. Okay. Let's start, start some here. kind of revolt. Okay. <laughs> what was the second part of that question? I forgot. Well, the second part of that question was about: Is there actually a problem with masculinity in the world oh. today? What would be an example of a problem with masculinity? Well, I don't know. Rising mental health issues oh. or suicide rates or um, uh, more violence, domestic violence, or I don't know the statistics about those things. I don't know from, from your work if you have seen um, or you would describe a problem as developing. That's a great question, Chase. You know, we've kept this discussion pretty... Um, non-clinical and not not too data specific when you ask that question um there is as as usual there is a difference of opinion there's a an author quite a um a scholared scholarly guy called Steven Pinker um who's I forget the name of his book um excuse me Steven if you're listening um he's written a <laughs> I co- hope he's listening he's written a couple of books this was a book on violence it's got a really cool title Beautifully written, carefully thought out, and he totally misses the boat. Mm. He's not looking in the right place. So his conclusion, which I think has caused a lot of harm, potentially in the academic world and even the sociological world of studies and thinking about violence, is that this is the least violent we've ever been in in our history as a human. Yeah, and I've seen a TED Talk with him that has that conclusion. Yeah, Yeah. Well, I hope one day we can have a co-TED Talk and lovingly push each other's theories and data, because um, I don't think he's looking in the right places when he speaks, when he defines violence. So there is a, a, a challenge, which certainly can be a problem, in the increases in violence in different types of populations, different geographic regions, and spurred on by different environmental challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mentioned anger a while ago. Um, I think we have proven this at this point. And that includes me and the Department of Justice and former Attorney General Eric Holder and the Federal Advisory Commission I was on with amazing people. We were tasked by the President Obama to look at children's exposure to violence in America. This was just 2010 to 2014. So, so new data. And, you know, we have, we have two out of three kids are, are, are experiencing violence on a number of different levels. So we have to consider whether we want to keep looking at this with scholarly lenses and accurate data and not just go into value-driven arguments about we're less violent or more violent. 
Um, we still have a very hard time subduing. Subduing, actually, is, we're good at subduing violence. We're not good at preventing violence. Mm-hmm. And to all of you out there that are in the business and the spiritual quest to, to reduce violence, please keep going. God bless you. Hope I get to meet you one day. And this is not an admonishment to anybody, but most violence prevention programs end up being violence suppression programs. So the violence goes underground for a little bit, but then it comes up heavier, more sophisticated, and harder to, to you know, to calm down. So we, we need to rethink a lot, still a lot of our approaches. And there are people out there who have united over the last 50 years so that we've been able to create the research, research and the, doc, the doctrines to be able to argue in front of the Supreme Court about the impact of violence, development, and trauma. And it's changed the history of how we adjudicate young people after they've been violent. Mm-hmm. And we've used, well, what we've used is data and um, very good surveys and very good clinical observations. So we have the American Psychiatric Association and Psychological Association combining in joint effort with the American Bar Association to advance the science of violence reduction. Um, so there's a lot of hope there. Uh, as my two colleagues that do have done a lot of that and have argued in front of the Supreme Court, it took us 50 years to get this far. It's going to take another 50 years. The science is there. The momentum is there. Um, it can be done. Um, I am not by any means certainly a prophet or the world expert. I do think what I'm suggesting to all of the brothers out there is, is you start with yourself, mm-hmm. right? If, and if you want to reduce violence, you start with reducing the violence that you may be feeling towards yourself, especially when you get isolated and you're irritable and you start to feel shame and hatred. And then you, you do things that you don't have to do to yourself in order to numb the pain. So it's a really, it's a big calling. It's an act. I'm asking us to do an act of courage every day to reduce the violence against ourselves, even the view of ourselves, working on ourselves. And then, as I mentioned earlier, knowing ourselves, mm-hmm. knowing when the pain starts. Even mm-hmm. if you're not sure of the root, living in the pain, living in your wound reduces your options to be in connection with others, which reduces your opportunity to lessen the, own, the, the violence in your own world. Can you wrap that up for me? In, and maybe you have one of these. What's a challenge that maybe we can end with? What would it look like as a single activity that someone could start with or a journal entry or a guided meditation that combines some of these things or starts us down this path? Well... Beautifully put, Chase. Um, again, I'm I'm in I'm all for concrete and clarity and transparency because these are heavy topics, or I should say they're just beautifully complex. But that we can not reduce reduce the import of it, but we can we can, we got to start with simple steps that anybody can do. So I'm going to just go back to my little formula, but I'm going to maybe mix it up a bit. Um, Take a moment, men, um, when you're alone um, and get a piece of paper and get a, a pencil so you can erase if you need to erase 
and uh, preferably in the morning, whenever you're cl really clear and rested and and are you know not not distressed when you're at your lowest distress level, and then write down all of your friends, every friend you can think of, which could include family, could include people from long ago, but especially those you're involved with, like in the last five years. And then look at those names and gently, it doesn't have to be permanently, cross off all the people on that list that are your friend because you owe them money or because they owe you money or because if you weren't their friend, they'd fall apart or if you weren't their friend, you wouldn't get the promotion you want. Now, those are all absolutely perfectly fine conventional social connections. But what I'm asking you to consider doing is you end up with a list. If you're lucky, you've got three or four names on it. I mean, I, I have maybe five now. And when you look at the names on the list, you don't say, oh, I really like that dude or that whoever. Actually, I'm thinking just do, it, just do your men friends so we can build, start building some men connections. So you get that list. You may have four or five men's names left on the list. You're lucky. That's awesome to have that many. But how you know they belong on the list is when you look at them you look at that name, you bring up their face and bring up their memory, and you say, wow, that guy would walk across the desert for me. That guy loves me. There's a real difference between that and saying, oh, I really like this guy, I really like this guy. Who's, who really is in your camp beyond the money you have and what you do for work and your house and your friends and your club or whatever? Men that, are there men in your life? If you have one, you're really lucky. If you don't, then we got to build it. And then you call those gentlemen up and you may say, let's start a men's club. Let's go hiking once a month. Or if it's one guy, let's, hey, you made my short list. Congratulations, take me out to dinner. I want to see you. <laughs> and you might be surprised at people's responses because some of the people, if there's any left on the list, are people that I'm guessing would actually really love to see you, but they're not sure if you care about them anymore or they don't know how to reach you. I mean, men are amazing that way. You know, we just, we don't know how to reach out or we're not sure or they probably wouldn't want it or I'm too busy. We have thousands of, of reasons. So we don't connect. We actually become experts at disconnecting. So I would do the shortlist exercise and then invite at least one guy to do an activity with you once or twice a month. If it's connected to nature, that would be awesome. If it's connected to nature and, you know, those of us that like to party, you know, do the first part where you're not partying, where you're clear and you can look into each other's eyes, and you can discuss one or two topics that are really important to you. Um, I have two different groups that came, both came really organically. One is a group of guys that um, does two events each year, one in the in winter, one in the summer. So we only see us twice a year. It's a pretty big group, but the the summer is you know two days, and it's basically these semi-competitive, crazy games, from sports type games to we have one called um, Build and Destroy where you have to build a structure and you've got all these rules around the structure. And so each team builds a structure and then you put tennis balls in the structure and then the rest of the teams try to destroy your structure but they can't touch it with their hands. So they have to use other tennis balls. <laughs> and it's hilarious. Then we have this big dinner and we discuss topics. Um, I have another, another group that meets every single Tuesday night. And they're all extraordinary men in their 60s and 70s now who've done unbelievable things. Some of them had great lives, were wealthy and now are poor. Others are, you know, doing extraordinary things still. Um, but it's, it's, you meet every night. You don't have to come, but we meet every single Tuesday night. Mm -hmm. And that's been, that's been amazing. Um, so you sort of have to build the connection, right? 
But uh, you start with yourself and you start with looking at who in your life has your back. And then, you know, I would also ask you, if you're, it's going to be uncomfortable, but when you're sitting with yourself, ask yourself, what are you doing that's harming you? What are you doing that's, you know, even microaggressing against yourself? And figure out how to change that because you don't need to punish yourself. And when we do, men, we take our punishment very seriously. And we certainly take our punishment seriously when we perpetrate it on others, right? Because we're the masculine, we're the patriarchy. But we do it to ourselves and then we don't feel worthy of connection. Beautiful. That's a lot. That's a lot for everyone to think about. It's been an amazing opportunity talking with you, Dr. Thank you. Mason. Thank you for the space and the respect. I really appreciate it, Chase. Integral to life are the trials and tribulations of self-discovery. Self-discovery requires we admit we don't already know ourselves. We don't already know where we're headed, what work is right for us, what people are right for us. It requires acceptance of the grand uncertainty of life and that we follow our gut along our own wandering path. Thank you to Dr. Robert Macy for sharing his own journey. It was a true pleasure to sit across from him. Thank you, as always, to Joe Corey for the audio production. Find him on Instagram at Joe underscore Corey for all your own production needs. Thank you to Auli Chino for the music. Find this spiritual gangster on the webs at www. Aulicino.it. That's A U L I C I N O dot I T. For whenever you get that yearning you have to hear a deep voice whisper to you in Italian. I know you do. And lastly, your challenge from Dr. Robert Macy himself. Take a moment in the morning or whenever. You're really clear and not distressed. Write down in pencil so that you can erase as you need a list of all of your friends, especially those that are the same sex as you, male. Especially those that you're closely involved with. And begin to cross off all the people where the relationship is based on some kind of dependency or fear, like you owe them money, or they'd fall apart without you, or you'd fall apart without them, or you'll lose your spot on the softball team if you don't hang out with them, or you may not get that promotion if you don't keep being their friend, or that you may not be invited back to the golf club. Now, See who you're left with, who is really in your camp for no other reason than that your heart is drawn towards theirs. Who would really go to the ends of the earth for you and vice versa? If you have one on your list, you're really lucky. And we should all have one, should work to have one. Hopefully you have three or four. And then the work really is to call them up, 
to create an opportunity on a regular basis, on a monthly basis, to connect in person, to do some activity together. Two men doing some activity together, like dinner, hiking, a group of you meeting up, a book club, whatever it is, but to create that connection with that person that really means the most to you. Okay, until next time, continue to chase wildly.